everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste blow up. My name is William Bibiani, I am a critic, everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold, and I too am a critic, and sometimes I blow up. Okay, we only have a budget for a couple of those. Alright. You can't do that every couple of minutes. And sometimes I drop pottery. <laughs> you just use the last and, of our sound effects budget. And here's a herd of buffalo. No, no, put that bottle down. No, no, that's okay, we just get a box of hamsters. Oh, there you go. It's an MST3K reference, in case. That's a bit of an obscure one, actually. Anyway. We're, we're those kinds of critics. Yeah, we really are. Uh, anyway, my name is William Bibiani. Everybody calls me Bibbs, and we do a podcast here where we review movies, dang it. And we got a big week this week. Yeah, this was actually, like, one of the bigger weeks uh, since the pandemic hit and movies left theaters. Uh, every once in a while, there have been, like, a big release on home video slash streaming, but this week we've actually had uh, quite a few noteworthy films, big casts, big directors. Um, it's been a it's been a weird trip. So we got uh, this week. Uh, we got the Old Guard. We've got Palm Springs. We've got Relic. We've got Greyhound, and we've got a remake of Princess Bride that you probably didn't know about. Also, on the critically acclaimed streaming club, we are talking about one of the films of the late, great Stuart Gordon that had somehow slipped us by, a film called Castle Freak, which has a castle and a freak in it. It's based on a short story by H.P. Lovecraft, which bears almost no resemblance to the movie. That, no, they, they do the short story in one scene, and then the rest of the movie is the rest of the movie. <laughs> it's pretty darn funny. Uh... So we got a lot going on in terms of uh, movie reviews, but before we get started on any of that, uh, it's been kind of a tragic week for the entertainment industry. We've lost a lot of people, some of whom are more in the TV realm, and uh, Whitney and I aren't really the best people to discuss them. But in the film world, we lost well some noteworthy uh, uh, artists. In particular, uh, we wanted to start with... A composer who has composed more scores than probably even he knew about. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're talking about the late, amazing Ennio Morricone. Uh, Ennio Morricone is perhaps best known for his theme to The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which goes something like this. He also composed... Ah! <laughs> Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> you just want to do the whole thing, don't you? Ah, um, wah, wah, wah. He composed that and 450 other films besides. Uh, he was, and that's um, just what he's credited as. He was yeah. actually famous for like composing stuff up under other people's names sometimes. So he didn't eat or sleep or walk around. He was just composing 24-7 for all 91 years of his life. Uh, and his work was consistently amazing. Like, you see yeah. a lot of people who are workhorses in this industry, and they mm. just, they're constantly churning out one thing after another, whether they're uh, directing the million films of Takeshi Maike, or the, you know, the millions of silent films of John Ford before he moved into sound and was still super crazy prolific. Ennio Morricone, I've never heard a bad Ennio Morricone score. Mm. He has a kind of a niche, kind of a style. It's a it's a very '60s kind of sound that that persisted later into into his career. But 
it's always good. And he was one of the great composers, period. And I think it's because he ignored the rule that I was told in film school. Uh-huh. That film scores are supposed to fade into the background. Inform the scene rather yeah. than dictate it. They yeah. shouldn't sound good when you listen to them on their own. Mm. Lies! <laughs> there are plenty of good film scores that do that, but fact, that's I'm, not necessarily the best way or only way to handle it. And any more, Connie disproved that constantly. Uh, in fact, I would argue that the opposite is true. I don't like this idea that film scores need to only inform the emotion of the scene. I think you should be able to hum those things when you go out. Well, I think that I think that it helps make the film have a lasting impression. Now, some movies really are going after something a bit more subtle, and they're not. I equate a film's score mm-hmm. to like when you're telling a campfire story and it's all spooky and stuff, but it's even better if you shine a flashlight under your face. That's just like this <laughs> sort of cinematic inflection where okay. a, f- a film score is underscoring a scene or overscoring a scene and some people do it. But uh, you're basically taking the events that transpired and you're trying to guide the audience into how to feel about it. And I think some of the lesser... Uh, bombastic scores just go, you will be sad now. <laughs> but I think Ennio Morricone's scores went beyond that. And I think he went into more complicated emotional ranges and uh, narrative styles in terms of not just creating suspense, but creating awe and grandeur and sex. <laughs> like his score for Danger Diabolic is sex. <laughs> like if you just turn sex into music, and you you needed to like put that in a superhero story or supervillain story as the case may be. Danger Diabolic mm. is the way to go. It is easily one of my favorite Ennio Morricone scores. It is alluring mm. and cool, and it makes Danger Diabolic one of the best and most underrated superhero mm. movies. I, uh, I like uh, they covered that film on Mystery Science Theater to to reference the show again. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, one of the comments as the score began like ramping up and all the colors began swirling on the screen. One of the comments was, "Uh Oh, it's getting groovy. (laughs) (laughs) So I think of a a lot of uh, Morricone scores. And I think, uh, although you could spot a Morricone, Morricone score from pretty far away, uh, he did work in a lot of different beats. And I think he was uh, not afraid to bring a lot of pop influence into his music. Uh, a lot of other composers, a lot of his contemporaries, and a lot of composers to this day take their a lot of their musical cues from classical composers and Baroque composers, mm-hmm. and try to you know, have a full like a full classical orchestra. Uh, he would do all kinds of other strange things. He wouldn't. He never strayed. I don't think into into like just outright electrical. Mm-hmm. But he, yeah, he really tried to bring a lot of. Um, just to repeat it, a lot of pop sensibility into the things that he wrote. Uh, one of my favorite scores of his, uh, and this is one that is not really being brought up a lot because it's kind of obscure. It's for a film that actually won Best Foreign Film uh, at the Academy Awards the year it came out, but it was for an Italian film called Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, oh, yeah. which is about a corrupt cop who uh, commits a murder and then deliberately plants evidence against himself at the crime scene just to sort of toy with the idea that the Italian police system is so corrupt that he can just sort of get away with it. And he keeps on trying to implicate himself and he's always just ignored. Mm-hmm. He, he is above suspicion. <laughs> he, he will, he will never be arrested even though he's, he actually is guilty of this crime. 
the score sounds like a music box that's breaking uh, with like springs flying out. It has this weird sort of syncopated rhythm to it, a lot of twanging. I think you did like a, a mouth harp in it. And uh, if you look up the preview for Investigation of a Citizen About Suspicion, there's a, a big sampling of his score on that one. Uh, I love it, uh, and I think it showed just how sort of wild and creative he could get as a composer. And I think it's interesting because we tend to associate Ennio Morricone with wild and creative and, mm. and very 60s, and I think that's a big part of his appeal is that he's got that aesthetic. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Quentin Tarantino, your boss, wanted mm. to work with him on something like Hateful Eight because it's a very mm. retro uh, kind of storytelling. What I, I found funny about Hateful Eight is... Um, N.A.O. Morricone won an Academy Award for that film. Mm-hmm. The uh, only competitive Academy Award he ever won. Yeah. He won yeah. a Lifetime Achievement Award, and then he won it outright for The Hateful Eight. <laughs> but uh, in addition to the score he wrote for The Hateful Eight, uh, my boss took mm. bits of other movies that he had composed music for. Like, oh, yeah, like, like The like Thing. Out, like, there's there's outtakes from The Thing yeah. in The Hateful Eight. It's I think crazy. Exorcist Two as well has a, a little snippet, which... Uh, uh, just other movies started to work their way into that, but the thing is is definitely in there. Uh, but I think my other favorite uh, Ennio Morricone score, besides uh, a lot of his Sergio Leone stuff, like mm. Duck You Sucker and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and mm. uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, and, uh, and and besides Danger Diabolic, which is one of my favorites, he also wrote one of the great sort of classical Hollywood scores of the 1980s uh, with his incredible score to The Untouchables. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Brian De Palma's The Untouchables, which we talked about mm-hmm. on a previous podcast a long time ago, but uh, is one of my favorite films of the 1980s. It is an incredibly inaccurate cop <laughs> story <laughs> about how Elliot Ness took look, down El Capone. It doesn't matter how accurate that No, it's really is. not. I just want to make it clear. That movie is, it's, as far as history goes, it's absolute trash. But it is incredible pulp storytelling, mm-hmm. and Ennio Morricone's score takes this really handsome production and makes it epic. It makes it huge. The scene where all of the Untouchables are like riding on their horses uh, on that bridge to Canada and they got to catch a guy before he, like when he's on the right side of the border. Oh, it's so fucking cool. Like I, I wish I could wow, wow, wow. I wish I could do that for the Untouchables, mm. but it's not that kind of score. I can't evoke it. But just if you haven't seen the Untouchables, mm. it's so fucking good. See The Untouchables. If you have seen The Untouchables, at the very least, pull up the score on Spotify or something, because it's it's mm. absolutely incredible. He, um, wor- he worked with every famous Italian director. Dario Argento. Uh, um, let's see who else. He worked with Don Siegel. He did Two Meals for Sister Sarah. Yeah, he did movies for Pasolini movies, yeah. and uh, t- technically he... He uh, orchestrated the score for La Ventura, although he didn't compose the score. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is a, a, an admirable skill unto itself. Sure. Uh, he worked with you know, Umberto Lenzi, and uh, there's Pasolini again. I'm looking over his filmography. He did, like, 16 films a year. Uh-huh. It was just nuts how prolific he was. And, and again, and of, the of, of consistent there level of, of quality. Uh, consistent level of quality. In his work, he mm-hmm. also did you know good scores for crappy movies, like he scored Orca for God's sake. Oh yeah, uh, he did Red uh, Sonia, Red Sonia, a movie yeah. I kind of enjoy, but it is bad. I'll, I'll yeah. grant you that. <laughs> but yeah, he did, he did a movie like Holocaust Two Thousand, then two months later, it'd be scoring Days of Heaven. You know, yeah. he he just always met the material and tried to elevate it, mm-hmm. no matter what it was. Just just absolute one of the legends, one of the greats. Um, 
If you're unfamiliar with this work, you're not. <laughs> you're, you're not. You know whether or not um, you, you're even consciously aware of it. His best work has seeped into the consciousness of popular culture and indeed just culture at large. And um, his more obscure work is actually a really exciting sort of... Like, you could just like throw a dart at his filmography and just find an interesting Italian mm-hmm. film. Like, that's yeah, it. Really. Like, you, you may be something you've ever heard of, but you'll find an interesting mm-hmm. film, and it's just, it's a really just, you'll, mm-hmm. you'll always be captivated by his music. Uh, I'm just trying to, like, give, give him full credit for all of, all uh, of the films. We don't have time on this, we, we don't time on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, it just would take that long. I want to bring up The Mission, though, Roland Joffe's, uh, the score he did for Roland Joffe's I've actually never mission. seen The Mission. The Mission is quite good, yeah. It's a story about a mission, and, uh, you know, not like a Mission Impossible mission, but like an actual like religious like a, a, mission, a, a Christian mission uh, in yeah. in the jungles and how it came under threat, and about the the journey of the Robert De Niro character who starts out as this slug about um, uh, conquistador who fell out and who ends up defending the mission and but ends up failing at doing that as well. Uh, it, it's actually yeah, pretty kind of a, a har- emotionally harrowing movie, and Ennio Morricone's score like you said about Danger Diabolic, just turns it into this gigantic grand epic, even though uh, it, it, it seems like it's really lush and beautiful to look at, but then his score kind of elevates that movie. It really is kind of a classic of the 80s that doesn't get talked about a lot. Yeah, well... But yeah, I love the mission. And uh, and we loved Ennio Morricone. Uh, again, if you're unfamiliar with his work, seek it out. If you are familiar with his work, you're probably still hurting over this. Um, and then actually, uh, just I think it was just today, uh, we found out that Kelly Preston has very tragically passed away at the young age of 57. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had breast cancer, and um, it wasn't publicized, so this took everybody by surprise. Kelly Preston uh, is one of the more like recognizable, consistent working actresses i think of mm-hmm. her generation where she actually didn't have a lot of individually like notable unforgettable roles but she was in a lot yeah she uh unfortunately she's best known as like the girlfriend character in a lot especially in jerry Maguire. Yeah. i think that's everyone's been saying you know kelly preston from jerry Maguire, and i'm like and other things yeah. like but uh for someone who is so frequently shouldered with like a, a supporting role to usually a male lead, mm-hmm. she brought a lot of like pizzazz to yeah. those roles. She she did have a lot of life and energy to films like Twins. Uh, yeah, she played yeah. Uh, she played uh, the. Were they also twins? They were just sisters. I, they, were, they were just sisters. Yeah, yeah, and Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger are fraternal twins, and um, they fall in love with two sisters. And mm-hmm. Kelly Preston is the one who falls in love with. Uh, Oh, Schwarzenegger. Mm. And she's great. She's she's one of the people, every one of her roles feels like it should have been a breakout role. Like yeah, every like every that, single, that, that should lead to yeah. her being a, a leading like, actor. Yeah, she was she was in twins, right? Okay, so she's gonna be huge now, right? No? no. Okay, well, um, she was she in was Christine, and Christine yeah. is quite a good. The yeah, she's a small role in Christine, Christine now, but. She, but, she, you know, she's in it. Yeah. And it's like, she's noticeable in it. Yeah. She had a significant role in Jerry Maguire. You'd think that would have built to something, mm. but no, she was the third mm. lead in Addicted to Love back when Meg Ryan movies were doing huge business. That's a weird fucking movie, uh, by the way. She was in a, a, a film I recall very fondly from my own childhood in the 1980s Space Camp. I, I never saw Space Camp either. Oh, yeah. Space, I missed a couple Space of big Camp ones in the 80s. Is, it's a really fun, uh, really fun premise. If uh, 
if you grew up in the 80s and you watched uh, game shows for kids, stuff like Double Dare and, and Funhouse, mm-hmm. the big prize, like the grand prize if you won these shows, was usually a trip to space camp. You got to go to NASA or the Jet Propulsion Laboratory mm-hmm. and uh, learn what it is to be an astronaut and try astronaut food and do all the cool astronaut stuff. Uh, and it was like, and it was like an overnight camp. It was like a full week. Hmm. Uh, the movie Space Camp is about a bunch of kids who are going to space camp, and they end up accidentally getting actually shot into space. <laughs> through, How does that happen? Through, through all kinds of contrivances. That sounds really contrived. And, okay. And, and how these kids are actually in space, and they have to learn how to survive in space. Teens in <laughs> space. I haven't seen it for quite a long time, yeah. but my childhood self adores space. Well, well, maybe maybe we'll get to it one day on the streaming yeah. club, so I can finally get around to it. Uh, the Kelly Preston movie I actually grew up the most with mm. was a movie that is weirdly unavailable now. Like I keep waiting mm. for like Shout Factory or um, I don't know Kino Lorber or Arrow, one of those like DVD companies that puts out like older, slightly forgotten stuff and really classy releases. Uh-huh. I keep waiting to, for them to get around to the Patrick Dempsey, Kelly Preston movie Run. Run has its its followers, doesn't it? Run is it's Run is a, Run's a good movie that I think people liked when it came out. It was on TV for a while, and then it just left. Mm. And to the best of my knowledge, it's never even had a DVD release. Um, but uh, it's it's quite good, and if you can track it down, it's definitely worth it. Uh, Patrick Dempsey plays. If memory serves, a law student who is also working, like he's paying his way through college by working at a mechanic shop, and he is told to deliver a sports car, just drive it Mm. to wherever, and he ends up in like a kind of an Atlantic City kind of town, this big corrupt gambling city. I think it's Las Vegas. Is it? I don't think it's actually Las Vegas, but maybe it's Reno or something like that. I could be wrong. Uh, But he ends up in a gambling town, and he decides to stop and gamble and he ends up getting in a fight with a guy over a game of cards and he accidentally kills a guy in the middle of the bar and yeah it was an accident and everyone saw it problem is that's like John Gotti's son <laughs> and everyone saw him do it and now everyone in the, there's a bounty on his head everyone in the city wants him dead all of the cops want him dead because they're all on the take and it's just Patrick Dempsey running for his fucking life and Kelly Preston gets swept up in it as well mm-hmm. um it's a fun thriller. It's very, very you know tightly paced and exciting. If memory serves, my only real complaint with it is that it ends kind of abruptly. Like I kept expecting it to have like a big climax and this kind of stops mm. at some point. Um, but uh, it's really, really cool. And she's like, I mean, it's the kind of role that like shot Sandra Bullock into stardom with speed. Like it's just yeah. it's weird that it didn't happen with Kelly Preston. But but then she uh, would show up and stuff like for Love of the Game. Uh, which is uh, a very well-regarded baseball movie directed by Sam Raimi. She was in Amazon Women on the Moon. She was. Uh, there's a, a a bit. It's about two teens in the 1950s, and, so funny. and and they're and they're ready to go all the way, and they have a car and a spot they're gonna go, but they need protection. So uh, the the young young boy, his name is George, and this is like in the 50s. It's, yeah, 1950s. Yeah. Uh, notice this: the young boy is named George, and uh, she plays a character named Violet. Those are characters from It's a Wonderful Life. So uh, oh. you could think of it as like the a conquest of the young George Bailey. That That's wasn't hilarious. an accident. That's hilarious. Yeah. The the joke is he goes into. Uh, uh, goes into the drugstore and he's really awkward and is an old man that he's known his whole 
life he has to buy condoms from, and he's really embarrassed. He finally buys it, and he ends up being the one millionth customer. <laughs> yeah, and the condom company shows up to like celebrate him and give him a lifetime supply of condoms. Yeah. And like his parents are there, like, we invited your parents! And Kelly Preston's mortified. God, it's funny. Well, it's, and what I like about Kelly Preston in that scene is that she has all the agency in that scene. Yeah. Like, he, he gets all of the comic bit, he has the m- most screen time, but she's the one who's saying... It's time to do this. Yeah. She's the one making this the decision. It's not this like weird awkward thing. They're both on board. Yeah. I'm so a, she she brought a, she I like that. I like she brought a lot to that. I, I uh, the movie I've seen a lot of like younger people uh, cite as their like introduction to Kelly Preston. I've noticed mm-hmm. lately is a really wonderful superhero comedy called Sky High. Sky High is great. Sky High is it's really, really good. Really good. Yeah. It, it came and went. Nobody cared when it came out. And it's a damn shame because it's really quite clever. Uh, it's a story about a high school for superpowered teenagers. But not like this like kind of grim and gritty Xavier school for gifted youngsters where everyone kind of hates themselves. It's like a public high school. Yeah, yeah, it's like a John Hughes movie, but everyone has superpowers. And all of the teachers are like famous genre actors like Linda Carter and Bruce Campbell. And they're all they're all ex superheroes. Linda Carter is the principal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce Campbell's the gym teacher. Dave Foley is like the substitute. He's, he teaches the sidekicks class. Yeah, God, which funny. is which is great, great casting there. And the school nurse is played by Cloris Leachman. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. That's funny. But Kelly Preston and Kurt Russell played the parents of the main character. Yeah, his parents are the coolest, best, most popular yeah. superheroes like in Mr. the world. Mr. and Mrs. America, or yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Incredible, but. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, but he doesn't have his powers yet, so he gets stuck in the sidekicks class, and he can't bear to tell his parents, so he's, he lies to them yeah. about it. And, yeah. the, my only problem with that movie is the villain's scheme at the end is a little too dopey. Like it could have been a little cooler; it didn't have to be quite so oh. kiddy at the oh, end. It's but fine. It's, it's still fine. Yeah. It's really witty. Like it's well written. The cast is just mm. dynamite from beginning to end. It's. It's the kind of movie I wish I had grown up with. Like, if that movie oh, came out no. in 1989, man, people would have been all over that. <laughs> that would be one of the most popular movies. We'd be remaking it mm. now. Uh, so that, that's a delight. I hope yeah, Disney Scott. goes back to that someday, because that was fun. Does Disney own it? Was, was a Disney film? No, it was a Disney film. film. All right. It was a Disney film. Yeah. Just mm. didn't really take off. But maybe yeah, yeah, uh, maybe uh, in 20 years or so, they'll do an animated series and, or something. Uh, and and uh, John Travolta did convince her to appear as a cyclo. In Battlefield Earth. Okay, yeah. So, so she's also game. <laughs> yeah. She has a weird role in Battlefield Earth. So she was married to John Travolta. And uh, they actually didn't appear in that many movies together. Although one of her last big roles was in uh, Gotti. Mm. Which is not a good film. Uh, also, neither is Battlefield Earth. But uh, that was John Travolta's big Scientology sci-fi would-be franchise starter, and he was really big into it, and it gives this really hammy, weird performance and the most awful costume you've ever seen. And she shows up in just, like, one scene as, like, his, like... Not Gangster's Mall, but, like, Conqueror's Mall, where she's just, like, he's, like, in a bar, and she's got, like, this incredibly, like, long, forked tongue. They get, Yeah, they give her this big, long CGI tongue, and he, she laps at John Travolta yeah. and this big, ugly alien She's outfit. clearly having fun. Like, it's a short, yeah. little, weird bit that she did with her they husband. Give, they give fast. her, like, a giant rubber head, and, oh, yeah. It's so fucking weird. Shit. Again, game. Very game. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, of course, she was also in The Cat in the Hat, which is... Also not good, but none of it is her fault. 
No. That movie is not her fault. That she movie ap- is the screenwriter's fault and Michael Myers' fault. She she appeared in, in really horrible movies, but it was never her. No, she was always really, really She was always good. really present. She was incredibly reliable, and she will be missed. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, rest in peace, Kelly Preston. Rest in peace, Ennio Morricone. Rest in peace, you know, everyone we lost this week. Again, most a lot of them were TV actors mm. or... Uh, TV personalities, and it's just not our field of expertise. We'll leave their eulogies to people who knew them better. Um, we have to move on now, uh, and uh, let's get started with the kind of movie that actually would be in theaters right now in any other summer. Let's start with a new Netflix release called The Old Guard. Uh, the Old Guard is a comic book movie. It's directed yeah. by Gina Price Bith- Bythewood. Bythewood? I'm actually not 100% sure I'm not 100%, on that. She's, she directed Love and Basketball, which hmm. is a very well-regarded motion picture. Which I haven't seen, and I feel yeah. I feel remiss in not having seen uh, it. I was very fond of a romantic drama she directed called Beyond the Lights, uh, which starred Gugu Mbatha-Raw as... Oh, she's wonderful. As, yeah, she's a pop singer who falls in love uh, with a cop. And uh, can they work it out? It sounds like it's barely like a movie, but it's mm. actually like just really richly characterized and fantastically told. Um, so I'm a fan, mm. but uh, she hadn't really uh, done the action genre before, and indeed, she's actually been attached to some other superhero stories. Those are haven't been made yet, and in the meantime, she did this other comic book adaptation, which is basically another Highlander. It it's this is the good version of Highlander. Uh, no, oh, you whoa whoa no, I, uh, whoa no, whoa! Shots fired. Don't get me wrong, I love Highlander. Okay, good. But it's corny as fuck. Uh, it's got a Queen soundtrack. That in and that automatically okay. elevates it over any movie that does not have a Queen if, soundtrack. If by some twist of fate it was the exact same movie, but they did not have the Queen soundtrack, we wouldn't be talking about Highlander, would we? Well, Airplane wouldn't be funny without the jokes either, so I can't really work with that argument. I will say this. If the um, old guard had a Queen soundtrack, it would be better. Can we agree on that? Fine. Okay. But yeah, the, it, it has a, a... You know what? I didn't know the premise going in. So oh, I got to see I got to see it sort of unfold uh, and discover this movie. It was really exciting. But yeah, uh, Charlize Theron leads a small group of uh, mi- uh, mercenaries who go into war-torn areas and take care of business, and they don't seem to answer to anybody. Uh, they just sort of go in and take care of where bad guys are doing bad guy things. And uh, Charlize Theron has a badass axe with, mm-hmm. like that's like circular, and she chops off heads with it, and she's very proficient with it. Uh, early in the movie, uh, an army gets a drop on them and they're shot dead. Mm. The group of mercenaries, our main characters, and then they get up again. Yeah, and and, and we soon and learn, pissed. and and they're really mad and they kill those guys. And we soon learn that uh, not only can they not die, but they are thousands of years old. Mm. We're never given their. Some of them give their exact age. Yeah. So the younger Surely ones, they're like have been around for like a few hundred years, but the rest of them have been around for so long they uh, don't uh, even know. Yeah, at least thousands of years. And we get to see some flashbacks with uh, with Charlie Theron wearing like Mongol armor, and she's like fought in various wars throughout history. Unlike uh, in uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine, mm where we learn how old Wolverine is and that he fought in a bunch of wars, we actually know why they're fighting in wars this time around. Wolverine mm. just sort of did it as a hobby, I guess. Yeah. Uh, why are you joining wars? I, I don't, don't know. know. What are you supposed to do? I have claws. What am I supposed to do? Knives that sprout from my hands. Have I you guess tried I'm a soldier. sculpting? 
<laughs> no, so you're no. just gonna you, you immediately like defaulted to war. Uh-huh. Those were for sculpting Wolverine. <laughs> <sighs> but uh, they point out that you know because they have this gift because they can't die they may as well go into the most dangerous areas imaginable and take out the people who are, would easily take out a mortal person mm-hmm. uh, the 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 bad guys the bad guys yeah, yeah they, and they're they're the ones making their very own moral judgments in this yeah but they they've been around for so long they seem to know what the right thing to do is like they, they're, they're they've not seen just, the sweep of history they're yeah, not they're, caught up in the moment and they're not yeah they're not sort of like sociopaths who love the violence in fact they seem kind of wounded by the fact that this is the only thing they can do yeah with their lives and it, I, I love that there's kind of a melancholy to the characters that i really appreciate it's a fun premise and i've seen that kind of premise in other things yes where there's a mortal or ancient race of warriors or this long line of warriors who will always mm. fight the true evil of the world. What were you doing in the early 1940s? <laughs> we look, took a nap. Look, there were five people worse than Hitler. You got the good part. Ooh. Yeah, think how chilling that might be. I think Stephen Fry wrote a time travel novel to that effect, where uh, it's like, if, if time travelers are real, then surely they'd come back and fix this. And Stephen Fry said, no, this is the best timeline. Like, the, the time travelers are here, and they're killing off, like, all these supervillains that are way worse than what we've seen. Yeah, which like, raises the question, uh, why stop there? <laughs> like, anyway. Uh, but uh, the plot gets going when uh, Kiki Lane from If Beale Street Could Talk... Yep. Uh, She's she's a modern day soldier. She's shot down, and she it turns out she wakes up, and she's also immortal. Uh, like the immortals in Doctor Sleep, there aren't a lot of immortals left. And when and this is a, a little bit of a comic book contrivance. When an immortal is born, they start dreaming of each other, and they just sort of find each other. They're all interconnected yeah. in some way. There's like a so. psychic link between the them, which must have been really difficult in like the Middle Ages when, like, an immortal is born halfway across the planet or whatever. Mm. But nowadays, we can just, like, just get on the internet. Yeah. Um, so that that's convenient. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and then uh, the... Uh, so basically, they're, they're on the run from people who know that they exist. It's really hard to, like, live off the grid mm. in the present day. Uh, and they also have to train this new immortal... Uh, and uh, those two stories interconnect as people try to hunt them down. And I like that the reason people are hunting them down is uh, they live forever. The rest of us are susceptible to things like physical deterioration mm-hmm. and cancer and all these other horrible, debilitating ailments. Maybe we could make medicine? <laughs> but rather well, than uh, ask them politely they decide to be dicks about it mm-hmm. and kidnap them and like carve off pieces of them send, all the uh, time I f- oh I, I can't recall the name his name off the top of my head but the mad scientist is played by one of the harry potter kids that's dudley dursley uh, the yeah. guy, he was also in um the legend uh the was the legend of buster scruggs the Ballad, Ballad of Buster, of Buster Scruggs. Scruggs. Yeah, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. He was in the uh... and he, he and he play he plays a, a prick well, and <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, really and does. that's no small feat. And yeah, the, he says, you know, finally technology is caught up with uh, with your immortality. We can finally like suck your immortality juices out of you and give it to other people. Well, and maybe someday maybe, we're working yeah. on it now. But You'll if, probably if, be here and tortured for know, yeah. a few decades, maybe. I don't know. It's nothing to you, right? And you know what? 
kind of not. I know. I hate to, I hate it when bad guys in movies like this have like a pretty good point. Yeah. Like they're going about it all wrong, but seriously, can we get some blood? Well, like and, we'll pay you handsomely. Like I don't know, what do you want? What what can we do for you? Because seriously, we would love to cure cancer. And we actually have two films this week that deal with immortality, and uh, yeah. I feel like the other one we're going to talk about deals with sort of the philosophical ramifications of living forever more than this one does. Oh, way more. Uh, because th- this one, uh, because it's a comic book movie, deals with it on kind of a surface level in that they're they're really sad and things are a lot more meaningful to them because they understand the, the broad sweep of history, but they don't get into, like, a new headspace because of it. That's the thing that bugs me about this movie. Mm. Like, I want to like this movie. I like everyone involved. Mm. I uh, like the cast. I like the director. The action kicks ass. The action's good okay. Action, the action's yeah. good. I don't know if it kicks ass for me. Oh, well. It's 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 solid. I don't like some of the. Um, there's like a one action sequence where we're just going to put on like a generic pop song while we do it for no good reason. Oh, well, it doesn't really nice. like suit the scene very well. It doesn't really amplify the drama. My only issue with this movie, and you 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 touched on it, is uh, it raises a lot of really interesting ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the characters, the world that they inhabit, their impact on that world, the way that they view the world. And then it ultimately is about nothing more than itself. It's just mm-hmm. about sort of exploring the mechanics of the world that yeah. they've created and giving a lot well, of exposition in the middle. And I just feel like th- your story is actually so mind-bogglingly simple, really. Mm-hmm. These guys are after us. We're training her so that we can have an excuse to talk about all the stuff that we wouldn't need to say because we've known each other for centuries. And uh, then uh, they'll like kidnap some of us or whatever. We'll have to fight them off. And that's kind of the whole movie. And that there's so much time there to explore these characters and really get into the meat mm. of who they are and what they do and why they do what they do and all the different journeys that they've been on. And be- But because they have to explain it all... They just go through it in dialogue, and then eventually there's another action sequence, and it just doesn't feel like they ever get around to really making the most of the concept. Instead, they made just a pretty good action movie out of it. Uh, well, I think of a very good action movie out okay. of it, because I think it has a lot of uh, character and personality, and I think it handles all of that exposition so much more deftly than even other A productions. Uh, that just sort of have to lay it bare. I was reminded of a film like, do you remember Jumper? Yeah. Do you remember Push, which I think came out the same year as I Jumper? I didn't see Push, but I remember Jumper uh, very well. These were two films that tried to essentially kickstart their own superhero universes. They were original ideas. They weren't based on uh, existing comic books. I think Jumper was. Maybe it was. but it might have uh, been based on a YA thing or something. I don't know. but I'll look uh, it, up. It, it was new to me when I saw it, and... Uh, those films were so unbelievably graceless about laying forth how these things came to be and the relationship, especially push the relationships of the characters and some of the lingo they use to describe themselves. And you know, you're a teleporter. No, I'm a jumper. Hmm. I jump around. You teleport. Based on a book. Based on a book. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Push is original though. And I feel like that's true of even a lot of, uh, of superhero films, like of, of the Avengers stripe, where they, they spend a lot of time, like like in the Doctor Strange movie, where there's an entire act devoted to, here's what a Sorcerer Supreme is. 
And and at the end of it, I'm still not really clear what a Sorcerer Supreme is or how they fit into the larger weft of the universe. Well, it feels like... I feel, I like, feel like these people have lived in the world a long time and they fit in the corner they've made for themselves. Well, I, I believe the everything cast. Everything feels of a piece. I believe the and cast. And the way that. they present all of the facts and the way we get to see them react to certain things, like when, like a, in one rather gory scene, one of the characters has their stomach blown out and they just have to sort of wait for it to heal like Deadpool. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's so much humanity and it's filmed in such a matter-of-fact way that it's much easier to accept all of the exposition rather than just sort of wait for them to dump it on our face Look, and I, we just have to eat whatever they give us. I, it's, not, it's not that I don't accept the exposition. Mm. It's that it feels like there's not much more than exposition. Mm. And that's the thing that bothers me. We're, the exposition no, I, doesn't I, feel... I, see, yeah. I feel like it doesn't get us to a place where now that we've given you all the exposition you need... Exposition, I feel, exists not to be the story. Mm-hmm. It exists to help you understand the story. Mm-hmm. You know, you understand people's backstories. You understand where they're coming from so that what they're doing now can mean more. Mm-hmm. And really, when you boil right down to it, there's only like a couple of pieces of information in this big old exposition dump of a movie that and ends up really having an important direct impact on what we're doing here. Like, these two guys are lovers. This guy had to watch his son die. Mm. Charlize Theron is so old, she's done with it. Like, that's kind of all we need for a lot of this. But it just takes up so much space. And you, Jumper's an interesting film to bring up, I think, mm. because I think you're right. I think it does get too wrapped up in its own mythology. But I think what is pretty clear from that movie is that Doug Lyman who directed that movie, also did The Born Identity and Mr. Mm-hmm. and Mrs. Smith and a bunch of other things. Um, he's pretty good. He, he's... <laughs> the the legends of, like, how hard it is to work on a Doug Lyman set are, are, <laughs> are just everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's really... There's a great... One of the best, uh, like, making of docs I've ever seen for a contemporary movie. Not, like, looking back ten years ago, we can all be honest, but, like, for, like, it, the movie just came out. One of the best ones ever is for Jumper. It's amazing how, like, honest they are about, like, how difficult it was to work with Doug Lyman. Like, he, they like him as a director because he's make, he makes good movies. But, like, yeah, we got them to, like, agree to let us film in the Coliseum, but we can only do it for, like, four hours. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so every second counts. Where's Doug? He's shooting home movies over in the corner. Fucking Doug, get him over here! <laughs> Jamie Bell is in that movie. He mm. plays one of the jumpers. And the jumpers can, like, teleport. And that's their whole shebang. Mm. And uh, Jamie Bell, he ended up, like, coming to the set every day, told him that maybe we'll need to shoot you today. So, yeah, and, get in makeup and costume. Yeah. And then he would not shoot that day so no. many times in a row he started getting bored and shooting his own documentary about not making the movie and it I got to the point where this this you, you think of the dance sequence the dance sequence yeah yeah because they had to have all these like body doubles for this teleporting stuff so they can look like within one shot like he's over there and now he's over there he got all his body doubles together and he choreographed a dance number <laughs> so there's like 30 Jamie Bells it's awesome but Jumper, you can tell that the thing that really excited Doug Lyman was the idea of doing like action sequences with teleportation, mm. like and so all of those action sequences are like so like distinctive and exciting that ultimately I like Jumper. Mm. It's not amazing, but it's fun to watch. The old guard, like I just feel like, I just feel like they don't end up making the most of the premise. I feel like they don't really. Dang, 
give us enough insight into these people. I believe them, but I feel like we don't... They're so busy explaining the gist of everything that we don't really get to the depth of anything. Mm. And the action sequences are pretty cool, but it just doesn't feel like anything we haven't seen. And, like, there's so many things you could do with only this well, premise that the show, that the movie only really gets around to a little bit. I feel like I just watched a really good pilot episode rather than um, I watched a complete film. I mean, that, I, I suppose that's fair in some, but there are still some really great action films that feel that way. Uh, um, uh, Salt comes to mind. Definitely. That that feels like an origin story more than anything. And I'm actually bummed we didn't get a sequel to Salt. I liked Salt. Salt is amazing. Salt is Salt, cool. Salt is a four-star movie for yeah. sure. Um the old guard, I agree with you. I feel like they're not really stretching beyond their premise, but what they are is taking a pretty familiar premise and doing it to the nines, and I think mm. they did it incredibly well. Mm. So I was really enjoying myself and enjoying yeah. just sort of how, how rich and, and well put together something like yeah. this was. Uh, the simplicity didn't really, I didn't really mind it, I think, because a lot of the performances elevated it. Yeah, it's a really good cast. Mm. I'll, I'll give it that. I love... Um, is it Matthias Shainartz? Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, I couldn't say. Uh, the 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 dude who fought like for, in the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, um, he's an actor who I really really dig, mm. and I don't know. He's another one where I keep expecting him to like really break out and like get like a really major huge role. Like I think the biggest role I saw him in was Far from the Madding Crowd. Okay. Where he played uh, one of the ro- romantic leads in this really, really good, really sumptuous period, you know, romance adaptation of a famous book and everything like that. It's a good movie. Mm. Um, so I, I like seeing him in everything. Um, I wasn't familiar with all of the other uh, actors in the film, like uh, uh, Luca Marinelli or Marwan Kanzari. Uh, they're great. Mm. Uh, <laughs> they play lovers who like met on the battlefields in the Crusades, fighting each other. <laughs> and then, That's and fun. They fell in love. That's fine. I like that. And, a lot. and there's a really wonderful scene where like a bunch of homophobic soldiers have them locked up. It's like, why, why are you looking at each other? Are you guys boyfriends? I will love this man more deeply than you will ever understand. Yeah, they've been in love yeah. for like two thousand years, like a thousand years, yeah. I guess. And they're like, he says, and I still feel as passionate kissing him as I did the first time. And you're just like, oh, see, that's a great moment yeah, because yeah. that's a kind of that's a kind of like speech kind of w- that withers mo- all the soldiers in the room. Like, and yeah, they just- most people like if they had a speech like that, it would feel like maybe they're being hyperbolic. Mm. He gets to really mean that shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, and, that was a good scene. I like that. Well, and I guess that's what I really admire about this. We're, we're not getting a lot out of like the premise or you know exploring new ideas, but we are getting something that I think is missing from a lot of comic book lore, and that is grandeur. Mm. I, and I'm not talking about like grandeur of narrative or 500 characters doing one fight scene. I'm talking about these are gods among men. Mm, we should feel some kind of awe. Yeah. When we look at you know superhero characters, and we don't, they're all like quippy, fun, down to earth characters. These ones feel a little bit more mythic well, to me, of, and I like that. That's one of the things I liked about uh, Wonder Woman. That yeah, she, that movie understood like, awe, you know, like just connected to Greek gods at the very least. Yeah. 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 Well, no, the whole like you know, no man's land sequence in Wonder Woman, where she just mm. strides across the mm. battlefield in World War One. That's as epic as anything. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I guess I guess think I, I will say I don't dislike the old guard. I think it's an entertaining action movie. I just obviously liked it less than you did. Okay, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I was really happy to see it. Uh, but uh, speaking of immortality, uh, we have a new comedy uh, that opened this week on Hulu. Uh, this was a Sundance acquisition. It was actually one of the more I think it might be the most expensive Sundance acquisition ever. Like people just 
couldn't oh throw enough money okay. at this thing. Uh, it's called Palm Springs. It takes place in Palm Springs, California. Get it? And uh, that's it. It's just yeah. all about Palm Springs. And it's and, and it. it's more or less a remake of of Groundhog Day. We've actually had a couple of these in recent years. I'm also thinking of Happy Death Day mm-hmm. and and its sequel, which actually isn't a time loop movie. The sequel. I don't even know what the no. It's title a time loop. Mo- the sequel. It's a time loop movie, but she ends up in another reality as well. So it just makes it more complicated. <laughs> so she's stuck in a time loop, but not in her yeah. own reality. So she's got to figure yeah, out a way um, to solve the time loop and get back to her own reality, which and, is fun. And this was also one I didn't know the premise going in. So oh, okay. I, so I got to see this. Co- sort of reveal itself. I, I had heard the gist uh, of it, but... We, um, uh, we catch up with Andy Samberg, and he's sort of a, a slug about. He's going to uh, his girlfriend's sister's wedding, uh, and he clearly doesn't want to be there, and yet somehow he manages to say just the right thing at just the right time at this wedding. Like, mm-hmm. even though he's just dressed in a Hawaiian shirt and shorts, he takes the mic and gives the most touching speech he could possibly Rescues hear. the wedding, basically. Yeah, uh, and... He, uh, he ends up talking to uh, some some of the people at the wedding, and we realize when he's out, in, and he takes... Uh, uh, Kristen Milioti. Kristen Milioti, who is a revelation. She's so fucking She good. is destined for great starhood. Keep yeah. an eye on her. Did you see her Black Mirror episode? I the, didn't. The it's Star, Star Trek, Trek episode. You need no, to see that. Yeah, you would I've... love that episode. <laughs> that episode's great. Um, yeah, uh, during the the course of the evening, it's nighttime. They're out in the desert, and he leads her to a cave where there's just glowing something inside. Yeah, uh, and while they're being chased by J.K. Simmons with a hunting bow, <laughs> curiously, which will not be explained for a while. Yeah, so it's like he gets shot with an arrow. God damn it, Roy! Who is Roy? Why did he shoot you with an arrow? Is this going to break into like a fake movie and this is actually the characters from Popstar? No. No. Uh, he he ends up crawling into the cave. Christian uh, Miliotti falls, follows him in and it turns out that he fell into this cave once who knows how long ago yeah. and has been repeating the same day over and over and over again. A la Groundhog he, Day. A la Groundhog Day. However, Groundhog Day, he it's the start of Bill Murray's journey in Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. When we catch up with Andy Samberg, he's clearly already been stuck in the same loop for centuries. He he doesn't remember what his job used to be. Mm. Like, no memory of it. Like, she asked him, like, what did you used to do before this? I honestly I, don't I remember. I honestly don't. Yeah. It's been so long since I've been lived any day besides this that I have no idea. Uh-huh. And and, uh, it, and it instantly gets into some really sticky philosophical territory because she starts at now she has to start repeating the same day over and over mm-hmm. again as well. Yeah. And we they can. both have memories of each other. So they start to ask, what are what is going on here? I don't know. What are the ramifications of this? I don't know. But if you don't die and there are no consequences to your actions, there's no reason to care about anything. Yeah. You're pretty much free to do whatever you want. However depraved, however lazy, mm-hmm. however fun, it doesn't really matter. Nothing matters. It's basically, we, are, we have reached a point where immortality leads directly to meaninglessness. It, it's Yeah, it's basically, uh, uh, if you took out the fantasy element, it would be about uh, Kristen Milioti basically getting trapped in a single place with a nihilist. 
Yeah. And falling sort of under the spell of nihilism, of not giving a shit about anything, mm. and then eventually growing out of it and realizing that human connection, our past, our present, mm. our future, does have significance. Well, and, and the memory of the things you do, even if nobody else remembers what you do, mm. what you remember doing is is just as significant a moral indicator yeah. as anything uh, the idea that the idea that there are no external consequences mm. from or for our actions does not negate the concept of morality morality mm. still matters even if only you know you did something wrong which is a really complicated concept for what is on the surface a very silly comedy it's, it's, it's a very a funny bright silly almost slapstick comedy it's so funny <laughs> Though, i'm not gonna ruin the joke there's a bit with the wedding cake <laughs> that nearly killed me. It was so fucking funny. It's it. Here's the thing with I, I love these moments, and they only come along like once every other generation. Sometimes, where a movie comes along, and it might not exist in a vacuum. It might be inspired by other things. It might be precedents, but does a new story idea or a relatively new story idea so well mm. that it quickly becomes its own genre. <laughs> like, you look at something like Night of the Living Dead, where okay. there had been zombie movies before, but not this kind of zombie. Not the everyone in the world who dies suddenly becomes a zombie. That was such a pure, simple, scary idea that people just immediately... Not only people start ripping it off... People started thinking that's actually what's going to happen someday. Like, in the back of our heads, we have a zombie apocalypse plan. A lot of us do. Just because it's so clean as an, as an evil, scary premise. Mm. And I think Groundhog Day is another one of those where, yeah, it has precedence, too. There are episodes of The Twilight Zone like this, for example. But the really, and it's a wonderful movie, just this really simple, wonderful premise of Bill Murray getting stuck in the same day over and over again and then, you know, in, falling... In, in a small town that he hates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, not somewhere cool and fun but that he would never get tired of, theoretically, but just banality and he has carte blanche to do all the horrible things he could ever want to do and then eventually he gets tired of that and he realizes that it's better to live as a good person even if no one will ever know you did. Mm. And... That is something that people just latched onto. The humor of this, the existential questioning of this is just I mean, Hallmark movies have been ripping this off. Yeah, yeah. And if you, it's it doesn't take a lot to make the premise fresh. And what Palm Springs does is it's more than one person. It's that simple. It's the idea that Andy Samberg has been doing this for a long time. Kristen Milioti is just there to offer a new perspective and give them an opportunity to actually ponder what they're going through mm. and go through it together and grow and challenge each other in the middle of this rather than only waiting for Andy Sandberg to figure it out. Mm. It's great. It, it's it's And it really has a lot of thoughts in its head. Yeah. Notice we started this review with the, the philosophy angle rather than the plot angle. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a, there is a plot to it. There is actually sort of a rising and falling arc and, you know, the romance between these characters but I, I appreciate that it's actually thinking some things through. Yeah. And I'm instantly reminded of you know, figures like Friedrich Nietzsche, who actually mm. had a, a theory. Uh, Nietzsche didn't believe in any kind of like metaphysic. It was all very, uh, very practical and very uh, uh, empiricist. And he had a, 
a theory that he called the the theory of eternal recurrence, which was meant to fly in the face of something like reincarnation. Mm. It's like, well, we're going to live now so we can ascend to a different life uh, after we die and we move on to another life. And uh, or we're going to behave well now because uh, in the afterlife we'll be rewarded for our good behavior. Here. That's what we're told. Yeah, um, ver- various you know myths and, and religious philosophies. And he said, "Here, here's how you live your life. Live your life as if you're going to die and go back to day one of the same life. Yeah, repeat the same day over and over again." How is that going? You know, live your life the way you would as if this is the one you get over and over again. Yeah. And I feel like, and Nietzsche's point was this is, you have to live as robustly and as kindly and as wonderfully as possible. You have to live with a sledgehammer because this is your one shot. If you're going to go back and do everything exactly the same, then you got to do everything right the first time. That was uh, basically, there's a really wonderful, uh, Mm. it's a bit of a weepy, but it's so good. Uh, Time travel movie called about time. You ever see that with Donald Gleason? I did, yeah. Yeah, I like that one too because it has a very similar sort of mentality with it. Yeah, we can travel through time. Just be. But that's not as. If we live our days to the best, we don't need to. It doesn't uh, matter anymore. Just uh, be sure to do laundry afterwards because you're going to be covered with syrup after that movie. (laughs) Uh, It is just so sticky. I know, but it works. It works, though. (laughs) That one works. It's maudlin, but it works. I was thinking about when I was watching uh, Palm Springs, I was thinking about Mm. a conversation we'd had when we recorded our Cancel Too Soon podcast about my own worst enemy, Mm. Uh, which if you missed that episode, uh, it was a failed TV series starring Christian Slater as a suburban dad. Uh, who doesn't realize that he's also a super spy and he's got a chip in his head that mm. allows him to switch between lives like that. Mm. Uh, and then the chip breaks and they start sort of popping into each other's lives randomly. Uh, they both have to like get used to each other. And we were talking about how that's toying with the idea of not a juvenile power fantasy, which is what a lot of superhero stories are. What yeah. if I was big and strong? What if you, I could you fly? Can't, you can't tell me to go to bed. Yeah. What if I was a spider type dude? Like all these kinds of things. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's, I, I would put on a costume and be spider type dude. Yeah, you know, that's that's just the kind of thing that like when you're younger, that's the kind of thing you fantasize about. But the kind of fantasies that we have as adults... I think are a little different. And I mean like adults like your 30s, middle-aged, and onward. Mm. Like you just don't really fantasize about being invisible or very or, often. Or being powerful enough to just wreck stuff. Yeah, that's not really the thing that would like, if we could do that, it would like ease tension or make our lives more palatable. And I'm watching Palm Springs and I was like, the fantasy that these movies present isn't living the same day over and over again and, like, Mm. being able to do funny, wacky things. Oh, that's fun, too. That's the Mm. fun and games of it. The real fantasy, I think, is what if you could achieve wisdom, the kind of wisdom that only comes from living Mm. and thinking and knowing yourself and knowing the world around you, the way that you only can by being old... And then being young enough to enjoy it. It's like they say, wisdom always comes too late, or yeah. youth is wasted, youth is wasted on the young. Yeah. All these things. What if it wasn't? And what if we could live all of these lifetimes and get re- really know how to live, how to be the best person, best version of ourselves, 
And then after we figure out the mechanics of the universe or whatever, we could go back Mm. and actually live a more full life. And Palm Springs, I think, explores that topic maybe better than Groundhog Day does. And Groundhog Day may be sort of a funnier, more like Cracker Jack kind of movie in some regards. Mm -hmm. Palm Springs is much more the thinking person's movie version. And I love this movie. I really like it too. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. It's seriously, check Mm -hmm. out Palm Springs. It is a really wonderful motion picture. Smart, thoughtful, hilarious. <laughs> I'm a sucker for Andy Sandberg. I think the guy's funny. I've I actually never saw that movie. He did Hot Rod. I hear it's very funny. It, it looked terrible. I know, but I love I love Brooklyn Nine Nine. I love Lonely Island's music. Pop Star, I think, is one of, if not the funniest movies of the last decade. Mm. Uh, I'm a fan, and this movie is wonderful. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if I'd call myself an Andy Samberg fan, but I haven't disliked anything he's done other than maybe yeah. The Watch, uh, where he he just had a cameo appearance in that. Yeah, one. he's barely in that. Mm-hmm. I was about to say, like, he was in that? He, he, he had a cameo during the, the neighborhood orgy. Yeah, which like, is... He and the other two Lonely Island guys were, like, in an orgy together. Which is probably the funniest scene in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> that movie's very bad. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Andy Samberg's really funny. Kristen Milioti uh, is per- just so perfect in this movie. Yeah. And she she's going to start leading comedy. She's on the Florence Pugh track. I think so. Uh, I, I saw Florence Pugh and Lady Macbeth and said, keep an eye on Florence Pugh. Yeah. Uh, and this this is sort of like the big calling card for her. Yeah. Like in terms of cinema. No, I think, no. And um, yeah, so seriously, do not miss this movie. It's fantastic. Mm. Uh, tell me about, let's, let's do a hard shift here. All right. Tell me about the movie Relic, which I wanted to get to. I couldn't make the time. Mm. I feel terrible because it's good. It's pretty great, actually. Um, I mean, good for the movie, and I'm glad I get to see a great movie, but damn it, I missed it. Uh, Relic is an Australian horror film directed by Natalie Erica James, and it's about uh, Emily Mortimer and her daughter, Bella Heathcote, go back to Emily Mortimer's mom's house to uh, sort of look after her. Uh, and when they arrive, she's gone. She's gone missing, and they don't know what happened to her. And so they just start poking around through uh, Mom's belongings, kind of wondering where she is, and finding some evidence that she may have been suffering from dementia. Like, mysterious notes have been left around the house on little post-its that don't seem to make much sense. Uh, Then the mother, just as mysteriously, reappears in their life, and she seems really weirdly emotionally distant, and because, uh, because of the nature of the film, we know that she's brought something with her, and we actually get to see like ghosts and shadowy figures lurking in the background that the characters never notice. Uh, and the audience barely notices. There's just these weird shadowy figures lurking around. And over the course of the film, we notice like some black mold is growing around the, the house. And you sense the weird mildewy dampness creeping into this place. And it's just rotting before their very eyes. And grandma is also rotting. She has this big, like, moldy patch on her chest that she seems to be covering up. Uh, And in a a scene that is (laughs) terribly symbolic, she wanders out into the woods with a family album, eating the family pictures, like, out of the the album. 
it's a slow burn film. There's a lot of quiet. There's a lot of just sort of waiting through these weird uh, haunted sequences where we're just feeling a lot of dread and ennui and family pain. And it it does, won't take a very sophisticated viewer to realize that this is a big metaphor for living with someone with dementia or living yeah. with somebody who is so old as to be infirm and how that is very personal and also very draining. And then we get to the third act and everything blows the fuck up nice. and all the weird spooky shit begins flying around. Uh, there's a sequence where Bella, Bella Heathcote Don't goes into, well, I'm just going to describe what the sequence is because you have to witness it to really experience what's going on. But she goes through a door. She can't get back out through the door. She's never seen this hallway before. Ooh. And that, that sequence continues for quite a while. Nice. I've had nightmares exactly like that. So I was bloody terrified. You know, again, I, I didn't mm. see this, but uh, I, I find it interesting when we use the term slow burn. Uh-huh. I think some people take that to mean boring. Here's the thing about a slow mm. burn. Slow, slow You're on fire. <laughs> like it, it, the idea is, it wasn't like a big explosion, but you are on fire. You're mm-hmm. like slowly burning. That's terrifying and scary, mm-hmm. and it grabs your attention. And if you don't notice that you're on fire, unless there's a fireball, that might be on you. I actually really love. Mm. Movies that we typically describe as slow burn doesn't mean they're always good. No. They, don't, they don't always achieve their goals, but you know, a good, subtly terrifying horror movie, whether or not it peaks, mm. can be the most dreadful and the well, best possible use of the word thing. I, I feel, you know, slow. I mean, slow. If you're just going to go with the pacing, a slow pace. Yeah, that that's. Uh, something that can be wielded quite expertly mm. and a slow pace doesn't mean boring. Uh, I, I, I hate this notion that a lot of Hollywood films seem to have latched onto that in order to keep people entertained, you have to keep them constantly distracted. There needs mm. to be something going on. And there's even screenwriter knowledge uh, that are passed down in like screenwriting mm. classes that something has to happen every X number of pages yeah. in a screenplay. Something big has to happen. Somebody has to burst in through the door with guns. Well, if you're making a certain kind of like heart-stopping thriller, then perhaps. But when you're dealing, or if you're even if you're making a horror film that re- relies on like a lot of jump scares and monsters, then that maybe that's also uh, appropriate wisdom. But if you're making a horror film that's about fear, yeah, that doesn't happen quickly. Fear, yeah, well, fear you, can see unless you confuse and, it with startling, but yeah. you know, yeah. Like dread, like the kind of creepiness, the kind of things that, as human beings, we are afraid of, and that's what a good horror film does. It explores something that uh, speaks to the fear within the human condition, mm-hmm. and the fear that this is tapping into is that idea of watching someone you thought you knew, maybe you don't even have good feelings about, slowly decay in yeah. front of you. That's one of those things where. Yeah, if you try to jazz that up and make it exciting, you're not getting at the actual Mm. frightening experience. You're you're distracting from the humanity in that scenario. uh, One of the things that is imperative that movies be able to do is sort of recreate human experience, and not every human experience is jarring. Sometimes they're subtle or insidious in a way Mm. that the insidious movies are not, because they're very bombastic. But, yeah, the times in my life when I've been more, like, ominously scared Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Usually for no particular reason. Like, nothing actually ended up, like, trying to kill me. But, like, you're alone in a house. It's the middle of the night. You don't know the house. It's mm-hmm. dark. It's full of shadows. It's creepy. That can be absolutely terrifying. But if you were to convey to people why, it's hard to explain. Mm-hmm. But if you're there in the moment and you're just sort of creeping around looking for the light switch, that it, in the moment, that takes time. That takes minutes. That takes That's an experience. Mm-hmm. And yeah, someone jumping out at you with an axe would be intensely scary. But if you're not going for that kind of scare, the only thing to do is to pull back. Yeah. I could really use a good slow burn horror movie right now. The last couple of ones I saw were not were, were whelming at best. Okay. So I really yeah, need this, to see this film. This one's really great. The the climb and, and it earns every bit of that weird climax that it has. And e- even beyond the hallway sequence with Bella Heathcote, uh, there something happens beyond that that is even more bizarre and really really disturbing. Uh, and deals with yeah, of course, intergenerational legacy. I recommend it very highly. Uh, you can okay. rent it through Amazon right now. Uh, it's a few bucks, right? It's like five, it, bucks it's like or five or six bucks. And, uh, but it's, it's worth that it's, money? Yeah, it's worth the rental. Okay. Uh, well, moving on, uh, there's a film that was supposed to come out in theaters this summer that ended up going not to Hulu, like Palm Springs, mm. not to Netflix, like The Five Bloods, but uh, to Apple TV. Apple TV is the streaming service for the grown-ups. Uh, you'll notice, like, there's actually a lot of kid content on Apple TV. Plus, yeah, they like, kid stuff, like yeah. Snoopy cartoon is on Apple TV, I think. Is it? Right or yeah. maybe that's on HBO Max. Maybe I'm mixing them all up. Yeah, they, they, but, uh, they, do have, they do have family-friendly stuff. But I've, I've noticed that they seem to be angling for a, a more grown-up audience. They're not showing, like, yeah. you know... They don't have, the like, the hip IP, yeah. essentially. No, they but have, what they like, do the... have is... The Tom Hanks World War II battleship drama. Yeah, the dad for your film. Dad, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and boy, is this a dad film. This is the daddest of dad film. Like, this is as dad a film gets right after Ford v. Ferrari. Like, um, it's in that camp. It kind of is, actually. Yeah. Now, when we say dad films, uh, this is a this is a genre that I think people started to key into and name around the time like Taken Two came out. And we realized all of a sudden that there seems to be a lot more movies about old men kicking ass but not seeming young while they do it. Yeah. It's about why it's cool and badass to be old and better. <laughs> and and uh and all of your uh all of the lessons you're yelling at your teenage kid while shaking your finger turn out to be totally true. Yeah. Oh, so that not only are you a badass, but all of your beliefs are completely validated. Yeah. And all of your interests are catered, catered yeah. to. Also, th- this also applies, of course, that ex- you get bonus points if it's a World War II movie or a car film. So yeah, Ford mm. v. Ferrari is a good example. Um, so Greyhound is inspired by true events, but it's actually a fictional story mm. uh, about a, a U.S. Navy captain in World War II Real uh, life U.S. Navy captain. Um, no, I think he's just inspired by a real one. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's mm. it's based on a novel, I think, not a not a thing. But anyway, um, but the the events are true. Where the idea is, we're sending supplies from America to Europe. Now, when we're close to the coastline, the ships had air cover, and there wasn't a whole hell of a lot the Nazis could do. 
Because the planes can just bomb whatever yeah. Nazi ships with, be coming. With, yeah. with a lot of precision and everything, so it's kind of done. However, there's a big chunk in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean where the planes don't have enough fuel to get anywhere else, so they have to like leave the ships to their own mm. devices for days. It's called the Black Pit. It is. As they, they explain in the opening crawl. And it, yeah. yeah, for I think it's for 48 straight hours. Yeah. The ships are unaccompanied and they have to fend for themselves. Yeah. And that's where they're most vulnerable to U-boat attacks. Exactly. And so the... And wouldn't you know it, the Acheron is chasing... I mean... <laughs> it, it, there's a very, very, very Master and Commander vibe about this. Another great dad film, by the way. Yeah, Master and Commander is, again, one of me and Whitney's like favorite movies of the century so far. Like, <laughs> it's so good. It's expertly crafted, great drama, great acting, and the action is amazing. And uh, that's one where I feel like you're right. I feel like Master and Commander was maybe not necessarily an influence, but probably a template on some mm-hmm. level for this. Because this is about, not so much about character. In fact... This may have the least character of any movie I've seen this year. <laughs> Tom Hanks plays this U.S. Navy captain, and he's responsible for being like the main attack boat that protects all the, mm. the supply ships. And here's all we get about him before the movie starts and the battle begins, and the battle is the entire 90-minute movie. Here's all we get. We get one scene where we find out he has a girlfriend, She's played by Elizabeth Shue. She's played by Elizabeth Shue. We will never see her again. Uh, He likes her. She gave him slippers. That's it. That's all we got. We know nothing. And he wants to get married. He wants to get married, but that's it. Uh, We also learn that he's uh, he's incredibly religious. He prays over his meals, Uh which he never eats. That's kind of a running gag throughout the film. Yep, he's so focused on his job he doesn't eat. But like, but this is these are little things though. Like we don't actually like this isn't like a character journey where he's like trying to earn his father's acceptance or some bullshit. Like it's just about doing this job that's the whole thing it's a man on a mission movie but uh yeah i I appreciate that they kind of cut out all the bullshit and they got down to what i think we're all really interested in or at least what tom hanks is interested in because he wrote the screenplay to this one he did uh and tom hanks if you know anything about him personally he collects typewriters Mm -hmm. he's a big typewriter enthusiast he likes little machines and technical things and Greyhound is a machine. It's a technical thing. And we get a lot of very loving shots about of uh, Navy captains using grease pencils on old-fashioned equipment that it looks impeccably designed. Mm-hmm. This is a film you can tell they did their research for. Oh, they want this, you to know they did this their research. This is a textbook of a movie just like Master and Commander is. A big appeal of Master and Commander was its historic authenticity. Yeah. They're trying to get all of the details, like the costumes, the design of the ship, the way ship the ship men operated just the, the relationships between the character mm. uh the ship was more important really than captain jack or the battles or anything else just seeing it in action yeah if you're into world war ii battleships you get to see them in action yeah my- every down to every tiny detail the the command structure who gives orders to whom the length of the shifts mm-hmm. all of that technical crap is here in full force and you know what since I love shop talk, I love this movie. <laughs> I, I don't know if I love this movie, but I really like this movie. Yeah. Uh, this movie, uh, Tom Hanks wrote it based on a novel. Yeah. Uh, it was directed by Aaron Schneider, who's been behind the scenes in a lot of films. Only directed like a few movies. He's probably best known for the Robert Duvall film Get Low, mm-hmm. uh, which is over ten years ago now. 
Uh, but yeah, I love the efficiency of this movie. I love it's ninety minutes. Mm. Like the temp- it should have been so easy to try to beef this up with subplots or, and and co- or, uh, and comic relief or or different moving time frames or uh, yeah. They're like, <laughs> it's, like a, it's like an antidote to Dunkirk in a yeah, lot of ways. It's basically it's just the nuts and bolts of battle and. Mm. The battle scenes are really exciting. Like, I love naval battle movies. We don't have nearly... We have so many battle movies, and if we must have battle movies, mm. I would like some more variety, please. And I feel mm. like naval battles are this incredibly exciting, very unusual form of battle to see in a film nowadays because they're incredibly intense. They don't move at the same pace. There's and all the, these great shots in this one of like like this U-boat that's going to try to ram their ship and they have to turn, but they're turning so slowly that they're probably going to hit it and if they miss, they're going to miss by inches. Mm-hmm. And you just see the whole ship like trying to scrape by it's and it's great, just like... The, oh. the shots of uh, the torpedoes zipping through the water and they look like sharks. It's really yeah. threatening. And there's they, a submarine. They turn and they nearly. Yeah, there's a great. submarine that like comes mm. up along this like giant ship, but it comes up so close that the ship's cannons can only fire over it, <laughs> which is such a cool thing. Now, in reality, there are actually ways around that they don't do in the movie, but it's so fucking cool. Mm. I, again, I, I'm torn, though, because I feel like the ruthless efficiency of this movie is the reason it exists. I'm sure you're right about that, because mm. otherwise they, they didn't have to do it this way. Uh-huh. If anything, that scene with Elizabeth Shue feels like an afterthought. <laughs> like, that feels like a studio note. Can we Can we have please, a love interest or, or another, we, a one woman in this can movie? Can we yeah. please have like an emotional... I feel like it feels like someone in the studio just says, I don't know why I'm on Tom Hanks's, like side here. Uh-huh. Because, like, initially it seems like he might not be a great captain. And over time, only over, over time do you realize that he might not make every perfect decision, but he is a good captain. Yeah. So it feels like maybe at some point in the development or in reshoots or, or maybe it was in the original, I don't know. But it feels like this scene was designed to just make sure we had some rooting interest for this guy right from the start. Mm-hmm. I think you lifted out the movies the same, maybe even better. Because just being dropped in the middle of this... Is really, really intense and exciting. Yeah. Um, this is, I think, more than any of the other, like, movies that have ended up going to streaming when they were supposed to go into theaters that we've seen so far this year. This may be the one I regret not seeing on the big screen the most. Yeah. Because this would have been glorious. Some really elaborate visuals. Uh-huh. and you know, That sense of glor- scope would have yeah, just been gl- so much bigger in some of these wide shots. Yeah, there's this big big CGI shot of the camera sort of dropping through the clouds and we see the entire ship fleet out in the open oh, sea. I, I think yeah. my favorite one is when you see this giant battle and then the camera actually lifts over the sea, through the clouds, and you see the Aurora Borealis, this incredible, beautiful, mm. natural phenomena that no totally one's quiet. noticing. Yeah, because and they go back down into the battle. Everyone's fighting. It's, yeah. it, it's really graceful. It's really technical. And I kind of appreciate that they did just trim off all the fat. Yeah. I don't necessarily like need some of that BS. Yeah. You can get, that's, you know, okay, that's where the character lives. Yeah, but I'm here to see the boats. Yeah. I'm here because, because I'm a middle-aged man. I'm here to see the World War II ships. And I want to see them working. <laughs> what do you want to see them doing? Battle stuff. Who wins? I don't care. Well, America. I, I hope Amer- World America. War II, but oh, yeah. yeah. I, I want America to win. <laughs> I want to see a boat, and I want to see America win. 
<laughs> who, who's commanding it? A, a, a good commander. What's his name? Commander Man. <laughs> look, it's Tom. Hanks. I feel like and this whole thing. Tom Hanks. Look, it's Tom Hanks. I'm on. I'm, yeah. I'm on board. Like, how often has he played an evil bastard? Like, let's just. But this, this, this <laughs> is the kind of Tom Hanks. This is the, that's the character. That's all we need to know. He's played by Tom Hanks. Your dad is going to watch this movie. He's going to yeah. call you up and he's going to say, "Hey, I saw this great movie. What's it called? Oh, I don't remember the title. Uh, Tom Hanks, though, and it's a lot of ship. It's T- Tom Hanks is a ship captain. In the movie. Okay, I'll look so, that up. So, you mean Captain Phillips? No, no, the other one. <laughs> World War Two. Captain Phillips is like a really intense character drama. Yeah. It's that's a good movie. Yeah. I like that movie oh, it's a lot. Excellent. It's, it's yeah. one of Tom Hanks' best performances, actually. Yeah, that scene at the end is just heartbreaking. <sighs> it's but, maybe uh, his best work. Um, but yeah, Greyhound. It's, I, I don't know if it's worth getting a subscription to that Apple service for, but it is a good movie. And <laughs> it, again, I don't know if it's going to make my best of the year list or anything. Probably not. But mm. it's a very well-told, exciting naval battle yeah, movie yeah. with just... All of the fat trimmed off. Yeah. If if you're not into World War II naval battles, skip it. Yeah. Skip it. It won't. You won't hold your interest. You won't be interested. No, in no, no. Like but this. if you have any interest in that at mm. all, if your favorite like Star Trek movie is Wrath of Khan, and you especially like the last action sequence, mm. the see this yeah. sl- slowly floating through yeah. that nebula. Th- that's this. See mm. see that that that's <laughs> this. That's Greyhound. So, um, yeah, I ended up digging it a lot. Uh, so uh, mm. and then lastly for our new releases, mm. uh, well, new. The it's, princess, new, it's, it's new. It's just just completed its run, as yeah. it were. Uh, they remade the Princess Bride this year. Yeah, remember that? <laughs> oh wait, it just came out. Nobody's talking about it. You know why nobody's talking about? Because it's Quibi. Whit- Whitney's favorite thing. My favorite thing. I'm the subscriber to Quibi. <laughs> They're making five bucks a month from me. <laughs> I'm the Quibi subscriber. I did Quibi. Qui- I, I love stories of gigantic hubris and failure, and I think this is a- Quibi's actually a really interesting idea. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and one of their new big projects is let's make a, a quarantine safe film. So they decided yeah. to make a quarantine safe remake of The Princess Bride, and they asked about a hundred different famous people to contribute. So they do the entire script of The Princess Bride, and. Every like every scene or so, they'll switch actors. Yeah, and every actor is shooting their own scenes, and then it's just really cleverly edited together, so it looks like they're kind of making a scene, even though they're all in their their like homes or a y- their yeah. yards. Yeah, like, this is all like all of that like homemade like TikTok kind of mm. uh, uh, production value. It's like that, except it's like Sam Rockwell or yeah. Paul Rudd doing it. Um, so, but it, and it's got the, this real uh, patchwork. You showed me a little bit of it, it's, uh, but it's all patchwork. It's, yeah. It doesn't flow, and I think that's that's clever, but that's its charm. No, I think that's yeah. I think that's what I honestly think. And I and again, I haven't seen this whole thing. Mm. I was amused by what you showed me. Okay, but the thing I remember thinking was, they picked probably the perfect movie to do with that. Because The Princess Bride is one of those movies where if you've seen it once, you remember every scene. You you remember it, and a lot of people have seen this movie so many times they have it memorized anyway. Yeah. And uh, it's really interesting to see, like, some actors are clearly very familiar with the work, and some are trying to do just sort of spot-on impersonations. Jason Siegel plays Fezzik in one scene, and he's just doing a spot-on impersonation of Andre the Giant. Nice. He's just sort of d- doing, and uh, Nick Kroll plays Vicini in, in scenes around the same That's time. That's fun. And he can do a good Wallace Shawn voice. Yeah, I bet he can. But some people clearly haven't seen The Princess Bride a hundred times, as when Pen- Penelope Cruz plays both Buttercup 
and Prince Humperdinck in the same scene. What? So she's like cutting back and forth for like to herself and reading it completely differently than it is in the movie because she's probably she's probably seen the movie but you know hasn't memorized that scene. Uh, who's to say? I don't know if Penelope Cruz is a big Princess Bride fan. It's hard to think of somebody who isn't. Well, that's that's uh, true. Isn't she married to Javier Bardem? She couldn't get Javier Bardem to play Humperdinck. Well, he, he plays Inigo, doesn't he? Oh, okay, fair <laughs> yeah, enough. He, he shows up later. He plays Inigo. Oh, okay, that's yeah. fine. <laughs> At least there's justification yeah. for it. Uh, I, I, I can. So read this off. is by choice, not by not because yeah, yeah. forced to. Mm. Yeah, I, it would uh, feel bad if if Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem were like forced to be quarantined, mm. like separate from each other. Uh-huh. Like, how sad would that be? Uh, gosh, and everybody you can think of is in this. Uh, who plays Buttercup? Tiffany Haddish, Penelope Cruz, Jennifer Garner, Leslie Bibb, David Burtka, Annabelle Wallace, Zoe Saldana, Joe Jonas, Mackenzie Davis, uh, Zazie Beetz, Zoe Deutsch, and Beanie Feldstein are among the actresses who play Buttercup. <laughs> That's fun. Uh, the grandfather uh, who's reading the story to uh, first of all we first meet the the grandson who was played by Fred Savage in the original played by Fred Savage now nice isn't that cute yeah. and and grandpa's pa- played by Rob Reiner oh that's fun who directed the princess Bride. yeah 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 that's that's fun uh, and all of this climaxes and I'm gonna tell you who's in it because it actually got me a little flaclemt. Uh at the very last the last scene in the movie is. It's the Princess Bride. I can talk about the last scene. Oh, that's with the story it's, being finished. It's yeah. It's, uh, the story is finished, and the the grandson is in bed and says, "Grandpa, you can come back and read that again sometime." And Grandpa turns to the camera and says, "As you wish." And it's a very sweet moment. And then they play the famous score. Uh, in the last scene, grandson is now played by Rob Reiner, and Grandpa is played by Carl Reiner. <gasps> <laughs> who just oh, passed away. That's sweet. <laughs> and Carl Reiner, you know, in his 90s, just turns around and says, as you wish. I'm like, oh, oh Carl Reiner. I miss oh, you, Carl Reiner. That's really sweet. <laughs> it's, it's really his last very role sweet. Too. Oh, that's it, sweet. This was probably the last thing he ever filmed. Oh, my God. That's just that's in really, his home. That's for, really for this thing, you know, we're going to remake his son's film just that's for fun. That's super adorable. That mm. is very, very sweet. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm this, curious. This, as, this as like a TikTok aesthetic. Yeah. And it's all presented in that sort of upright phone aspect ratio as well. Yeah. So you're meant because you're meant to look at Quibi on a phone. Yeah. Some Quibi films I you can I turn th- your phone sideways and you can see sort of the landscape aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I've been watching it upright just because that's sort of their mission statement. Mm-hmm. The shoebox format. There you go. <laughs> the, the the iPhone format. How I don't know what to, what to even call it. Just say upright. I've been calling it shoebox. Is that a letterbox? Okay. The, shoebox. <laughs> the shoebox format. The tissue box format. Uh. Uh, this is, I mean, I I do like these sorts of fan films where people try to recreate famous movies just because there's so much like pluck to it. That's fun, especially when they're trying to do it with limited resources. Hmm. The well, scene we, where the, the uh, be kind rewind, I think, started that as a fad. It was the call yeah, it sweeting. sweeting. Uh, the yeah. I, there's a, a really funny scene where. Uh, in The Princess Bride, where two characters tumble down a big hill. Well, yeah. how do you do that if you don't have access to a hill? Well, it turns out uh, Leslie Bibb and Sam Rockwell just throw dummies down a staircase. <laughs> it's like, you work with what you got. That's fine. There, there's a scene where uh, uh, Andre the Giant's hand has to grab somebody's face, but the joke is that it's really huge, so they just made a cardboard hand and put it over their face. Uh, <laughs> I think they were specifically instructed not to make it look slick or professional, even though I'm sure plenty yeah. of these actors like, could have. Nobody do nobody use anything that wasn't already in your house. Yeah, so, and you're famous, so you probably have a lot of weird shit. But like, so Sam Rockwell, like he has to wear a black mask because he's playing Wesley, and uh, it, it's clearly just a pair of yoga pants with holes cut <laughs> in it that he stretched over his face. Uh, 
it's it's just fun. It's a fun idea. It's yeah. fun to see celebrities messing around. And uh, if we're all under quarantine and we can't really shoot anything because film sets aren't really feasible right now, yeah. why not do something like this for fun? I'm trying to think of what... Okay, first off, I've, I've one question and I have a prompt. Okay. As... You, I'm sure episodically it's a delight. Mm. Have you tried watching it all together? Does it actually work at all as like a film? Uh, it... it, it Kind of does, but I think it's just because I know the Princess Bride so well. Right. Uh, because it's being shot uh, in a bunch of different locales that don't match, yeah. it's not going to play so well. The dialogue is still funny, and you might be able to follow the story a little bit. Mm. But no, I don't think it works as a feature, even though I did watch several chapters back to back to back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, all of a sudden we're we're in Tom Lennon's backyard, and for some reason Tom Lennon is dressed as Lieutenant Dangle because uh, <laughs> he's Tom Lennon. He, of course he, is. he had he had the suit. Yeah. Why not? But yeah, he's just sort of in his backyard, and then we cut to somebody else's backyard. Well, where the hell are we? What character is this now? I don't know. I was I was uh, listening to um, Sen Live uh, mm-hmm. this morning. Sen Live is like um, the Schmodown uh, Entertainment Network's version of like a morning radio show with mm-hmm. all of their like main personalities just talking about stuff of the day and answering questions and stuff from people uh, who are watching and uh, it's fun and they actually had a brilliant pitch for a Reno 911 spinoff okay. today and I really want to get this going Reno 911 which is on Quibi by the way yeah Reno they brought it back for Quibi well good Reno 911 is a very 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 funny uh, uh, series that's about the worst police department in the world mm-hmm. which is saying something uh, but uh, they had an idea for Gotham nine one one. Oh, jeez! How funny would that be? I just the the idea makes me smile. Of just that exact same cast, those exact same characters, <laughs> but they get transferred to Gotham City. That's a great idea. Give them all the money. Let them executive produce it. Let these let the Ooh, and one folks do, do you, it. Do you suppose Lieutenant Dangle could meet Bruce Wayne's doctor, who is also played by Tom Lennon in The Dark Knight Rises? <gasps> no, we're gonna find out that that was Dangle undercover, trying to like <laughs> trying to like solve some sort of crime at the hospital. We're gonna find out like actually like a whole bunch of like weird little incidental stuff uh, in the Dark Knight movies. Was was the Reno Nine One? Oh, that's funny. All right, but my prompt for you is this. Princess Bride, we've already talked about how maybe the reason why this thing works hmm. is because we already it's know the Princess Bride so well, movie, yeah. and so no one's like having trouble following along or anything. Mm-hmm. No one's seen this for the very first time. What do you follow it up with? Like, what's the next movie you do? Ooh, what's what's something that everyone could like recite that everybody loves? Yeah, like what's that? What's that? Because they're, they're out mean, there, but what's that like uh, perfect movie? I would I would suggest Clue, but too many characters are in the same room in that movie. It's yeah. like an enclosed location, so yeah. maybe that wouldn't work so well. Ironically, the second movie that came to mind, actually, I also thought of Clue. The mm-hmm. uh, was uh, Clueless. Okay, Clueless could be fine. Clueless could be fun. The other one that came to mind was The Lord of the Rings, which would take a long time, <laughs> but it would be really and fun. It would be really fun, and there's nobody you couldn't get. Andy Serkis, incidentally, is in The Princess Bride. There you go. I'm sure you could get some people involved here, mm-hmm. because it's a fun premise. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Merchant plays Count Rogan in one film, and he's the one who has to activate the torture machine. Oh, yeah. And in the movie, the torture machine turns on like a little path of water and it activates this sort of big water wheel. Uh-huh. Uh, Stephen Merchant was clearly just filming his own jacuzzi. <laughs> like he's got like a jacuzzi tub. <laughs> the, the little arrow that like he pushes up the gauge is like an Amazon logo next to the, to a number that he just wrote in Sharpie. Uh, just the, it, it's so it's so charming. <laughs> it's so it's so sweet and funny and just enjoyable to watch. It's not 
heady, important art, mm. but I'm glad that you can get something done. Yeah. For Quibi I, I <laughs> during like, this time. I, I like the industriousness of it. Yeah, if yeah, I yeah. if I had any money whatsoever, I would subscribe to Quibi based off this alone. You get two weeks free. <sighs> yeah, you know me, though. That's how they get you, though, because you forget to unsubscribe. <laughs> and then you're just like, ah, I guess I might as well stick with it forever. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how they get you. Well, they get you on the first month. You're, you're out five bucks. It's just I, five bucks a month. If I had five bucks. Oh, that's true. <laughs> I, would, I would be okay with that. Um, all right, so those are the new releases uh, for this week. Big week of new releases. Let's review them yeah. on the critically acclaimed scale. Once again, the critically acclaimed scale goes from C- minus to C+, plus, where C is average. Most movies are average. C- minus is below average. Everything from, eh, we generally don't recommend it, to the worst thing ever. Mm. And C- plus is above average. Everything from pretty darn good to the best movie ever made. Mm. Uh, and uh, is it just called The Princess Bride? Or is it's, it called, called, like, it's called Home Movie colon The Princess Bride. Okay. Home Movie The Princess Bride. Uh, is a C. Uh, it's, oh, it's, just it's, a C? It's not some brilliant unlocking of The Princess Bride, but I do recommend you see it. I think it's just a really fun little little fame experiment, as it were, on, on a failing platform, which I think makes yeah. it a little bit more, fa- uh, more fitting. Uh, Greyhound. Uh, Greyhound is a lean, mean, efficient World War II dad movie-making machine. Mm. Uh, it's th- It doesn't go beyond itself, but what it is trying to accomplish is already very exciting and worth filming. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it's just a nuts and bolts naval action thriller, but it works. I'm giving it a C+. Plus. Yeah, a C+, a C plus as well. It's not like a, yeah. a, a hugely passionate C+, plus, yeah. but it's a C+. Plus. All right, Relic. Relic is also a C+. Plus. A, lot, a lot of good films this week, actually. Um, yeah, this is a really unbelievably effective, very moving, uh, very disturbing, fearful horror movie that has a lot of good nightmare imagery, but more than that, a lot of uh, dark facets of humanity. Mm. Uh, Palm Springs, the new comedy. Mm. Uh, This is a C plus, and this might end up on my best films of the year. I really, (laughs) really love this movie a lot. It's witty. It's funny. But beyond that, it is actually soulful and intelligent, and it is not a movie. Mm. It's not a movie that assumes the audience is stupid. It's a movie that assumes the audience likes stupid humor, but is smart. Mm. And as a result, I think that frees them to make the absolute most of their premise. They got a wonderful cast. They left me feeling things and thinking things. And that's hard for any movie to do, let alone a silly wedding comedy. So, uh, yeah, Palm Springs is that big old C+. I agree. I agree with every one of your points. Um, I, I can't even contest that, uh, that it's, it's space on a top ten list. This is just a really smart, really well, really well thought out, very thoughtful, uh, very, very funny movie that succeeds on every level. Yeah. So, yeah, also a C+. And uh, The Old Guard. Uh, the Netflix action adventure starring Charlize Theron and Kiki Lane. Kiki Lane. Okay, bad with names sometimes. Uh, listen, this is a very this is another sort of efficient mm-hmm. kind of thriller, but unlike say Greyhound, in which simply being efficient was the raison d'être, I actually think it kept the movie back a little bit and it ended up feeling a little less than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. Um, I like it okay, but I don't like it enough to give it a C plus. This is just a firm. Pretty good. If you like this, then you'll like it. Uh-huh. 
kind of movie. Like, if you like this kind of movie, you'll like this movie. <laughs> you know? If this is your kind of movie, then this is the movie for you. Yeah, like, listen, if, if the idea of Charlize Theron starring in, like, kind of Highlander... Like, mm. makes you go, ooh, you'll probably enjoy watching this movie. I just don't think you'll get much more out of it than that. Right. So I'm giving it I'm giving it a confident, strong C. All right. Just never really blew me away. I'm going to give it a high C. I, okay. I, I think you, you kind of talked me down a little bit. But mm. I, I really enjoy this film. I think uh, it's, it's an usual premise, but I think it handles it very deftly. I think the action sequences are really fun. And I think the acting is really what puts it up over. And, like, it actually bothers to get into the emotional state of the characters a little bit better than a lot of films of its type do. So yeah, high C. I, I, I still recommend it. Okay. Uh, all right. So that's yeah, it. No, for- no, no duds this week. I'm no, really happy about that. Good week for cinema, honestly. So that's, that's awesome. Um, now we got to move on to the critically acclaimed streaming club. Once again, uh, this is where Whitney and I try to take advantage of the fact that we don't, we're not able to like go out to movies anymore. So we have all this like extra time. So we might as well catch up on some movies that one or both of us haven't seen before. Uh, this week's theme was horror movies on Shudder, which uh, is kind of their whole thing on Shudder. Shudder so, is a, uh, so a film on Shudder. Yeah, basically. Uh, Shudder is a streaming service dedicated to the horror genre. Uh, they have new movies, including one that we missed this week called The Beach House, which I meant to get to. I'll try to do it for next week. Um, but uh, they also have a lot of catalog titles. And so, when in our huge horror fans... Mm-hmm. We uh, selected a bunch. We put it out for a vote on our Patreon. And the winner was Stuart Gordon's Castle Freak. Uh, a, a bit of an odd choice, but yeah, yeah go for it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's so, a Stuart Gordon film neither of us had seen. Yeah, which is which is actually a little hard. We're fans of the, of the man. Uh, Stuart Gordon died earlier this year. Uh, we talked about him on a previous edition of the Critically Acclaimed podcast. Uh, Stuart Gordon was a filmmaker who... Made his mark in the horror genre, making gory, often funny, very inventive. Mostly horror movies, but he also dabbled in sci-fi as well. Um, Excuse me. Cough. Robot jocks cough. Yeah, one of the best movies ever made, Robot jocks. Um, But uh, he's also... Tokyo Story, Robot jocks. Number two. He's also one of the few filmmakers to make successful adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft stories. Mm. H.P. Lovecraft is one of the most influential horror writers in history. Uh, he wrote a series of, sto- of a, a lot of stories, actually, in the 1920s and 30s in particular, uh, that dealt with cosmic horror. Mm. Horror that was so frightening, so bizarre, that it almost couldn't be put into words. And that's hard to film. (laughs) The the whole idea of something being beyond description was a big part of of Lovecraft's uh, writing ethos. Lovecraft uh, lived in an attic room in Providence, Rhode Island uh, with uh, family members that he hated and rarely saw and wrote these these movies, these these incredibly elaborate stories about cosmic horror and also racism. Uh, yeah, he's a, he was a very, very racist person. He's a person. virulently racist person, but uh, the ra- and the racism is in a lot of his stories, but not it's not what he's known for, luckily. No, no, he he, uh, he popularized a different kind of horror writing than people mm-hmm. have been used to. He created his own mythology at a time when people weren't really doing that in narrative fiction. 
um, like like, like a, a mythology a that would span of gods. Yeah. yeah, like it would span through different stories and different characters. So if you read only one of his stories, mm. fine. But if you read a bunch of them, you would see recurring threads. Yeah. Um, a lot of influence. Again, some of his stories are distractingly racist. Yeah, and that's one of the things that makes them very hard to adapt. Another thing that makes them hard to adapt in his entire career. I think he only wrote like three or four female characters. Yeah. Period. Like at all. Well, and his stories tended to be told in the first person, so they were usually just sort of a narrator relating a story, so mm-hmm. that they weren't inherently cinematic in structure. And then right. he started talking about like angles that are impossible. Uh, the, in uh, one of his most famous stories, The Call of... We pronounce it Cthulhu, although in the story it's like... It's like this yeah. weird guttural noise. Yeah, the word Cthulhu yeah. is supposed to imply that you cannot pronounce you're not it supposed, correctly. You're not supposed to be able to pronounce the word. <laughs> just the closest we can get in, yeah. in text. So we just say Cthulhu. That's easy for us. But uh, yeah, we land on the island of Cthulhu and, and it like rises up out of this edifice that isn't supposed to exist. Like the like, geometry is entirely wrong. Like, and looking at it makes your brain like. How do you even envision something like that? Yeah. And you can't. And if, when it comes to literalizing it on film, you can't really do that. Yeah, people have struggled. Like, so there you know, been, was a Richard yeah. Stanley made a really good H.P. Uh, Lovecraft craft adaptation earlier this year called Color Out of Space. I haven't seen that. Uh, and Color Out of Space is about a color that doesn't exist. Yeah. How do you put that on film? You got to film some color, right? Yeah, you got it. Well, like because the and it's weird because if you think about it, there are actually like color spectrums that the human eye cannot see. Yeah, so there probably are colors out there that we just would blow our minds to see them. Like, can you imagine all of a sudden you saw a different color, like altogether? It might break your brain. It actually mm-hmm. reminds me of um, I think it was a Ray Bradbury story. Where it was about a planet where the stars were invisible, like you couldn't see the oh, stars. Oh, Nightfall! It was an As- Asimov story. It was an Asimov yeah. story. Asimov wrote a story about a planet where the stars were not visible. Mm. Like, you, you know, like in the big city, you can't see any stars. Mm. Like that for the whole planet, and then like once every thousand years or something, the stars would all come out at once, mm. and the entire planet went insane simultaneously. Yeah, they'd never seen like the majesty of the stars was so yeah. so grand to this these people that they just went insane. Yeah. But that's a very Lovecraftian idea right there. Mm-hmm. So a lot of filmmakers have struggled with turning HP Lovecraft into a film. And Stuart Gordon's one of the few people to actually pretty much consistently get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I do believe that mostly has to do with his choice of subject matter because he doesn't tend to adapt the ones that are inexplicable. <laughs> he tends to adapt the ones that are a bit more inherently cinematic. So, for example, his Stuart Gordon's first feature film, uh, Reanimator, Reanimator, is based off of a serialized story that H.P. Lovecraft wrote uh, that was basically a big old ripoff of Frankenstein. And, and Lovecraft admitted as such yeah. in letters. He said, I'm going to write a Frankenstein story. It's the yeah. same thing. I, I Reanimator. It's about reanimating I, corpses. I, I yeah. got to sell something. Reanimator is actually, as a story, quite good. Mm. And the the movie is quite good. It's about a couple of college students who find a way to bring back the dead, but they're it's still in the experimental phase, and every time they do it, something terrible happens. Mm. It's funny. Smart. Jeffrey Combs is amazing. Uh so that worked great. Uh, he followed that up with a movie called From Beyond, which was a little in the vein of the unspeakable cosmic horror, but mm. I think he had the budget to pull it off. Uh, it was about a mad scientist who had created a device that would 
put the human mind on a wavelength to see an alternate dimension full of monsters. Uh-huh. But that dimension would get inside our heads and mutate our pineal glands and mm. turn us into monstrous creatures ourselves. The movie is fun. The movie is gory and has cool monsters. Uh, Stuart Gordon kind of strained against Lovecraft's uh, sort of asexual writing style and kind of... Tried to over- sex it up a little bit. Yeah. Probably tried to sex that one up a little too much. Like, the sexiness in that movie doesn't even make sense most of the time. My, my pineal gland is stimulated, so that makes means I'm suddenly into bondage. Yeah, I, I don't uh, get it. it's it's that's, not un- that's, like, that's like part of part of the thing, the fabric of It's not unentertaining, but it's weird. Um he would go on and we'll skip over Castle Freak for a minute and just to cover the gamut of it. He would go on to do a very respectable adaptation of The Shadow Over Innsmouth called Dagon, which I have not seen. Uh it is not amazing, but it is very good. Uh, Dagon is a, a, another H.P. Lovecraft story Which is sort of set in the same world mm-hmm. As The Shadow of Ransmith And The Shadow of Ransmith is a story about uh, A New England intellectual Who stumbles into a small uh, fishing village mm-hmm. Where uh, all of the inhabitants Have started worshipping a fish god In order to They've, they've given up Christianity and they've gone back to pagan ways. Fishianity. And as a result, they've started devolving into fish creatures. <laughs> like uh, you do. Like you do. Uh, Stuart Gordon made a film out of that that is pretty darn good. The monsters are really, really great. I love how moist the movie is. It all takes place like during a rainstorm. So like it might as well be underwater anyway. And it feels uh-huh. just very... It's got a distinctive feel. Like I feel like... I don't know. I feel like you ever been like in one of those like uh, amusement park rides where they like spray mist, so like you get a sense of like yeah. a place. I feel like you when you watch Dagon, you just feel that mist on your face, whether or not mm. it's actually there. Um, so that's pretty good. He also did a uh, Masters of Horror episode called I think Dreams in the Witch House. Okay, uh, which is pretty good, a little unmemorable, but well made. And then in the middle. He made this film Castle Freak for Charles Band. The Full Moon Entertainment guy. Yeah, Full Moon Entertainment was, well, still around actually, but in the 80s and 90s, Full Moon and Troma were these two off-label movie studios Mm -hmm. that mostly made low-budget schlock. They made violent, gory, Mm -hmm. monster movies... And sci-fi thrillers with no budget whatsoever. Some of them are kind of famous. Full Moon is responsible for the Puppet Master movies and the Ghoulies movies. Troma, of course, did the Toxic Avenger and Sergeant Kabuki Man and YPD. And one of their biggest hits was Tromeo and Juliet. And they're currently working on another Shakespeare adaptation. It's based on The Tempest. And it's called Shitstorm. <laughs> All right, that's which good, I love. That's a good title. I'll give, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But there was this period, I think, in the early '90s, late '80s, early '90s, where Full Moon was like vying for respectability, and they started like making some bigger movies. Puppet Master was supposed to be a theatrical release, and ended up going straight to video. And Castle Freak was supposed to be a theatrical release, and ended up going straight to video as well. The origin of Castle Freak is Stuart Gordon who was uh, working on other films at the time, was in Charles Band's office, and he saw a poster for a movie called Castle Freak. And the way a lot of like lower-budgeted movie studios would work is... is you an Ed Wood story. <laughs> you, you, you make a poster of a movie. Uh, 
that's and, how you sell it. And that's it. That's all you got is just this. Look at this poster. Don't you want to make that movie? And you get investors that way. Movie hasn't been made yet, but you have to live up to that poster. So Stuart Gordon says, what's that? It's like, oh, this is a movie we're doing, Castle Freak. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, what's it about? We haven't made it yet. And uh, he's like, oh, can I do that? And he's like, <laughs> okay, on three conditions. It's got to have a castle. It's got to have a freak. And it's got to be cheap as fuck. <laughs> Stuart and, Gordon was, and Stuart Gordon got like final cut and shit. So he's like, fine. Okay. And, and lo, he did it. It has those three things. Yep. Say what you will about a castle a, freak. It takes place in a castle. Yep. Has a freak. Yeah. Scary looking one, too. Yeah, it's creepy. And, uh, and boy, howdy, does it look cheap. That's the thing with this movie. <laughs> I actually tried watching this movie a couple of times, and I couldn't get over... The VHS aesthetic Just it, how yeah. VHS it feels. Like, I'm, I don't even know. Maybe it was shot on film, but, like, it looks really cheap yeah. and and the transfer you get on shutter is clearly taken from an old vhs or, or a dvd which was taken from the vhs yeah it, it, they didn't like clean it up this is not you know yeah. amc or movie. if they did clean it up holy crap it, it would have looked much worse before yeah like uh, castle freak is be- based very 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 loosely on an hp lovecraft short story called the outsider which is my favorite lovecraft story i think it is arguably his best work i think yeah. it's certainly right up there the the story is about a, a lonely being that lives in these bizarre castle-like chambers and it's never been outside. It remembers nothing. And the way it sort of describes its twisted childhood is this bizarre, faraway thing. And it decides to find out uh, what what's outside. And it climbs the inside of the castle and, like, climbing out to the top tower to see what's out in the world. And it gets to the top of the tower and it turns out there's just flat ground at the top of the tower. And it sort of climbs out and starts walking across the ground, seeing all these weird, strange sights. And it goes to a party and everybody freaks out. Because, what is that thing? The tower was a crypt all along. Mm. And there was a dead body climbing out of the grave. It's it's a really, really great story. Yeah. The big reveal is that he's like, he, he sees a horrible monster and he's like, no wonder they're so scared. And then he realizes he's looking at a mirror. Yeah. yeah. And it's really tragic and no, scary at the same time. It's really uh, good. Castle Freak has that kind of. There's a, there's, there's a moment kind of like there's that. There's a moment kind of like that. But uh, there's, a ca- there's a freak in a castle. Uh, it's been living in the castle. It, it's it's got no tongues. It's been cut up. It's all scarred and gross. And uh, Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton inherit this castle. Yeah, you know, you know, like that. The, you know, like it happens sometimes where like you're just going about your business and then you find out like you're, a relative you never met before has left you a castle or like a million dollars or mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're like a princess and like Julie Andrews has to teach stuff. I, I really hope I have a long-lost wealthy relative someday. Movies <laughs> promised me that this would happen, okay? Like, I would kill for that. You will get half a billion dollars, but you have to spend a night in a haunted house. Is it a haunted house? I was going to say a rec room. Oh, well, I can do that, too. Is it a haunted rec room? Very. <laughs> <laughs> this foosball table is very haunted. Foosball. This foosball table's been dead for 50 years. <laughs> This Ms. Pac-Man cocktail table has been around since 1979. So Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton, both of them stars of From Beyond and Reanimator. They're coming back. Always good to see them together. They're great actors. Um, they are miserable in their marriage. Yeah. They hate each other. And it turns out the reason why is because Jeffrey Combs is an alcoholic. He was driving their kids and 
it's actually not entirely his fault. Like the kid in the back seat, this mm. little kid, like a little four or five year old, um, he was in a child safety seat. Mm. He unbuckled it, so clearly the seat was defective because he shouldn't be able to do that shit. And uh, Jeffrey Combs actually turns around to like try to get him like back in his seat safely, mm. and only then is he hit by anything. Yeah. So. I, I I wonder if that was engineered specifically so that we don't just absolutely hate Jeffrey Combs with every fiber of our being. <laughs> because if he was just drunk and killed his young son and blinded his teenage daughter, yeah, we would just hate him. His teenage daughter is blinded in the accident. The young son is dead. Uh, he and Barbara Crampton st- still married, kind of. But they, she they're, they're clearly t- hates him and has yeah, not forgiven and, and him. And he hasn't touched, touched a drop of alcohol since, rightfully so. He shouldn't have been drinking to begin with. Yep. But... Uh, Tr- just trying to barely stay in her good graces. That's that's the state of their marriage. And yeah. they move into a castle, and there's a freak in it. Uh, the freak sneaks out in a sheet at one point, so we get to see it sort of dragging sheets, uh, dragging chains around, because it's yeah. chained up in the basement. Like an old it's, tiny yeah. ghost. And yeah, it has a sheet over it, and, but we can like see its big, gross, gaping mouth through the sheet, so it's like a ghost with a zombie in it. And the conceited, it's kind of, a, kind of a cool image. Well, it's a cool image, and I think the, I think the basic premise is kind of creepy and scary. The idea that there's someone living in your house... And you don't see them. Now, a lot of us live in like small houses or apartments, and that would be very difficult to do. But just the idea of it is creepy. Just like, like we're in my living room right now. Like if, if, if someone just like walked out of my like laundry room door, mm-hmm. I just like, ah, I'd be like, ah, that would be very, very scary. But when you inherit a castle and they say the castle is like 150 rooms, it does not look that big, but. It's well, a big place. It looks life. pretty big. It's pretty big. I don't know about 150 went, rooms, but it looks pretty re- big. They clearly went to a real castle in it, Italy to shoot. It's actually so, yeah. Charles Band's castle. Is it really? Yeah, he owns a castle. <laughs> actually, what happened? Apparently, that, the story that, that actually doesn't surprise me. No, at all. yeah, they're not going to spend money on a castle. You go to Charles Band's castle. Well, I, I thought it was one of those things. It's like. Um, this ca- somebody just moved out of this castle. Somebody else is going to move in in a week, so you have like three days to get in and out. Well, and it was it was kind of like that? Where apparently they were shooting at this castle, they were mm-hmm. filming it. And apparently they were a little a little over schedule. And apparently Charles Band showed up with his family for like a family reunion they were having, and they were still filming. And Charles Band was kind of surprised, and he's like, "You got to wrap this thing up in a day." <laughs> <laughs> no, no shit. All right, sorry, Charles. Um, but uh, but anyway, so the idea is this place is really, really huge, and so there could be someone living there, and you'd never see them. Yeah. And to add to the creepy factor, you know, the, the blind teenager is sometimes in the room with mm-hmm. the castle freak, and she doesn't know it. Or the castle freak is, like, hiding under sheets, but, like, the building is, like, being, like, sold <laughs> And so, so the furniture is covered in sheets. So yeah. like, so th- th- the freak will just be there under the sheet, and someone will walk by, and you think it's like a lamp, mm-hmm. and then they move. That's super fucking creepy. as an idea. That's a really, really good, atmospheric, intense thing. If it was shot better, mm-hmm. it might have really been scary. <laughs> and there are moments I feel like when it is creepy. <laughs> There are moments where I feel like it is creepy, and may, again, maybe with like this was like perfectly like remastered, maybe it would really sing. Like we've all seen like bad VHS cop. Well, not all of us, but mm. older ones of us have seen like bad VHS copies of things, and then you see it remastered on a DVD, and you're like, "Oh, this movie actually looks good." <laughs> I didn't know this movie oh. ever looked good. Like, oh, 
I, well, good for them. I got that with Wong Kar Wai's Days of Being Wild. I saw, oh, it on I, a, saw that. I saw it on a VHS tape that was so low quality, the color kept blinking out, and I mm. thought that was a weird aesthetic choice. Yeah. Like some scenes were in black and white and some weren't. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna like ding the filmmakers too much on that. And, like just in case they actually did their work and it looks really, really good. What I can say is that the extant version of it on Shutter is not scary for that reason, even though I should be scared. All that stuff is really, really creepy. Mm. Um, the basic plot is the teenager realizes that they're not alone in the house. Mm. She tries to convince her parents. Parents aren't buying it. Jeffrey Combs starts being convinced that they're like haunted by the ghost of their uh, young son. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got, got kind of like a don't look now kind of vibe to yeah, it. And it like, he, he looks around through like old pictures of people mm-hmm. who have lived in the castle yeah. and he sees pictures of a kid who looks exactly like his son. Mm-hmm. And it, because, yeah. because the, the castle freak in question is actually like a relative of his that has been like tied up and like chained up in the basement and abused by the woman who died and left in the castle. So really... The castle freak should have inherited the castle. It's their fault for being there. But he is, he is, uh, I mean, I don't think the castle freak has a social security card. I think, I think he's like off the grid. Well, I'm just saying if he like actually just showed up and just like, Hey, listen, uh, I I know I'm a castle freak anyway. Uh, but (laughs) like with no tongue and no genitals. I know. Listen, my point is this. Uh, I, I, I actually, uh, I, I'm the rightful, inheritor of that castle hmm. and they'd be I, like look, look i need it I'm, I'm a castle freak i need a castle what do you want me to do i'm, I, I'm not gonna be a library freak yeah like i'm not gonna be a, a deli freak <laughs> <laughs> the franchise might not have legs the, um, although deli freak sounds like something trauma would be <laughs> <laughs> it does um so uh their marriage of course starts getting rockier and rockier he starts hitting the bottle it's all a whole thing and then eventually the freak reveals itself and starts chasing everyone around but jeffrey combs has just been framed for the murders the castle freak has been doing um it's very it's very very simple and of course the idea is the freak is the version and i realize freak is an offensive term that's like the name of the movie is what we're calling it but like we're the 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 this creature uh is the outsider mm-hmm. during the catacombs and like there's one bit where it f- is finally free of the catacombs and it climbs up some stairs and it sees a mirror and it breaks that mirror mm-hmm. and jeffrey combs and his family come in and it's like the mirror broke and she's like see i told you there's like something going on here and jeffrey combs is just like the wood must have warped and i'm like no <laughs> mirrors don't just shatter like that they don't shatter all of a sudden it might chip or something mm-hmm. but that's not a thing Anyway, uh, there's some good disturbing gore imagery. Uh, yeah. There's a, a scene where uh, there's a whole sequence where Jeffrey Combs decides the marriage is on the rocks. He goes into town. He gets drunk. He picks up a sex worker and he sleeps with the sex worker. Mm. And then the castle freak decides to try that, too. And it goes very badly for the sex worker. It's really gruesome. It's, it's incredibly gruesome. Like, yeah. like, like some cannibalism uh, going on. Off-puttingly gruesome, mm. honestly. But it is a horror movie and they are trying to be like ultra risque mm. and freaky. Well, in that ultra risque freakiness, it's it's like the Herschel Gordon Lewis philosophy. If you're going to make a cheap horror movie, you at least got to up the ante on the gore. Right. 
Like we don't have big budgets to attract, you know, gigantic stars or have, uh, you know, like, you know, Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton are respectable stars. Yeah. But uh, we don't have the budget to like sort of shoot the heck out of this thing, and you know, for big sets, we're just sort of shooting in the producers. Own home. I will say this: so, for, for but you know, knows, but you know like, what's cheap is is fake blood and some gore effects. Yeah. So we're just going to do some gory shit. Go- Gordon to, knows to what to show sick, you, yeah. and he knows that if he's going to show you anything, it should look good. Yeah. So the makeup effects look good. The mm-hmm. gore looks good. The most upsetting thing in the movie to me was the scene with the cat. Uh-huh. Uh, that uh-huh. that scene's fucked up, and that's a big old trigger warning. I'll tell you that right now. Mm-hmm. That scene is. Is sort of just like, oh, is this, the, is this the movie we're watching? Mm. I don't know about this. Like, obviously, the, the it's a, you know the cat seems fine, but like, <laughs> it was it was unpleasant in a way that like some, there's a difference between watching a horror movie and being scared and watching a horror movie and going, I'd rather not. And, well, and, and it, it, Castle, Castle Freak, Freak skirts yeah. that line uh, for sure. And I, I think, but I mean, Stuart Gordon is a savvy enough filmmaker. You know that what he's doing, he's actually trying to gross you out. Yeah. He he's trying to to prod at you a little bit and show you know just what a depraved creature this freak is and how it doesn't really understand what a lot of humanity does. Yeah. Um, to a gruesome degree, uh, and yeah, it's it's pretty sick. If you like sick shit, this has got some sick shit in it. It does. It does not, however, and this is unlike I think any other uh, Gordon Lovecraft adaptation. Mm-hmm. It never feels Lovecraftian. Not for a second. No, it's it's too gaudy for that. It's it feels too... more like Poe, weirdly enough. Like yeah, some, some of the the lesser Poe adaptations. Yeah, like some of the the yeah. That's mm. that's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, it's just there's nothing about like the nature of evil or sanity. You could have gone there maybe if we'd somehow found a way into uh, the villain's like mind a little mm. bit. Maybe that could have been explored yeah. to a greater degree. But um, although the premise is is creepy enough in and of itself, it's just got this very brash, mm. unsophisticated vibe to it <laughs> that I can understand why this movie is a, is a cult favorite. There are people who really like this movie, yeah, and I can see why. And but it has nothing to do with how Lovecraftian it is. This is a poor Lovecraft adaptation. I'm not a huge fan of it just in general, but I can appreciate it. As just a sleazy gore fest, yeah. Um, but uh, when it comes to the Lovecraft stuff, if you the Gordon look looking for Lovecraft, if you're yeah. looking for Lovecraft in all the right places, <laughs> you will see Stuart Gordon's Reanimator, and actually the two Reanimator sequels are very fun. Although Brian Usna directed those, um, you will see uh, uh, From Beyond, mm. and you will see Dagon. Although, arguably, the greatest Lovecraft adaptation isn't actually based on Lovecraft. It's John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Which is Lovecraft-adjacent. It's it's not specifically based on a work of Lovecraft, but it's based on the premise of the works of Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah, and it understands the actual like cosmic horror yeah. of Lovecraft's best work better than, I think, any other adaptation I've seen. Although I still haven't seen The New Color Out of Space. Color, color out of space is up there too. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so that's Castle Freak. It, it I wasn't so impressed actually. No, I was, I was hoping this would be like some like classic I'd get to rediscover, or at least some really fun pulpy mm. grindhousey thing. And um, no, it's just like it's just kind of gory and gross. Um, I mean, the, the gore, like I said, the gory and the grossness is its selling point. True. Uh, I've seen a lot of even from Full Moon, a lot of really shitty low budget horror films from Full Moon that. 
don't really have the the balls to do what this film does. True, but in terms also, of in terms of how like sick and gory it is. True, but I've also seen those same movies that are more entertaining than this. I suppose so. So yeah, this is. I, this I suppose is, I'd rather watch like Puppet Master Four. Yeah. Before I'd watch Castle Freak again. Um. So listen, if you're watching all Stuart Gordon's films, you're mm. gonna run into this. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen or anything like that, but it's not his upper echelon. If you're going through a bunch of Full Moon movies, same thing. Mm. Gone for Lovecraft movies, same thing. I'm glad I finally saw it, but I also don't think I'm likely to revisit it again mm. unless they do like some sort of gorgeous remaster mm. that might give me an opportunity to completely reevaluate it. Yeah. Um, so that's that. Next week on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, mm. uh, we had a poll on our Patreon. Uh, the... Uh, the category was anything on Crackle. <laughs> Just hey, anything at all, really. You know Crackle, right? Yeah, Crackle is Sony's streaming service. I believe it's ad-supported, so it is free. Mm. Um, they actually have an interesting selection of films. Mm. Like, if you are just looking for something to watch, you'll find some neat stuff there and some old stuff, too. Some, like, weird genre stuff. A lot of straight-to-video crap. I saw a Dolph Lundgren movie on there where they misspelled Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> So that was fine. That's that shows you like maybe the level of curation we're talking about here. But we were able to find some interesting films that neither Whitney or I had seen, or at least one of us hadn't seen. Uh, and the winner of the poll mm-hmm. was the Dustin Hoffman film Marathon Man, which I haven't seen. Which I haven't seen either. So this will be fun. I like uh, it when we both haven't seen it. That makes it a little extra, yeah, extra yeah. entertaining. Uh, so uh, this, of course, is uh, the source of the famous movie line: "Is it safe?" Uh, which involves dental torture. So I've seen that scene before in many Eclipse shows, yeah, but man. I've actually never watched the whole movie. I'm very excited to. I rented it once. I got five minutes in, and then it was a defective DVD. Oh, no! Yeah, which I know sounds like a whole, like, oh, DVDs are the worst. That happened, like, once. Yeah. <laughs> like, my whole life. No, twice, actually. Twice. There's two times that's ever happened. So, um, so yeah, next week, Marathon Man. There will also be new releases aplenty. I don't know what they are, because streaming is weird. And uh, that's that, basically. So thank you, everybody, for listening to Critically Acclaimed. Uh, If you want to follow us on Twitter, you could do that. (laughs) What's your Twitter handle? I'm at William DeBiani. I'm at Whitney Seibolds. Together. Collectively, we are at Critic Acclaimed. There you go. Uh, If you want more content... That's because we don't put out enough podcasts here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash network. You can vote for future episodes, vote for future stuff here at the Critically Acclaimed main podcast, future episodes of Cancel Too Soon, etc. Uh, we also have exclusive podcasts dedicated to every single episode of Star Trek ever, mm-hmm. every single episode of Firefly, uh, every single movie ever nominated for Best Picture, uh, all the movies and TV movies and miniseries and TV shows that should be on Disney Plus but mysteriously are not, and other stuff besides. So thank you to every single one of our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. We're very grateful to you. Uh, if you want to write to us about anything we talked about on this podcast or anything we talked about on any other other podcasts or anything else you want to talk about, you can write us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email on a future installment of our podcast, We've Got Mail, which is right here at the free section of Critically Acclaimed. That's right. So thank you, everybody, once again. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for leaving us a review. If you've ever made the time for that, very, very grateful for it. And um, we think you're cool. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Okay.
And never forget, everyone's a critic. I'm sorry, what?